Six pack lap it at. We got the strength guys. The strength guys are with us today. Uh, obviously, we got the founder, CEO, president. What titles you got, my man? Uh, I'm the president and co-founder of the group, and I'm also one of our coaches. There we go, Jason Tremblay, um, Alfred. We got a, I, I mean, a, a bit of a background. So I had knew about some of the Taekwondo, but Jason was saying before we went on the air, he's like, "My man, don't be shy with your." Obviously, you got the coaching, and and everyone sees you doing handling and coaching and in your content on social media, but you got some powerlifting chops, my man. Let's hear that resume, because I was totally unaware. And I'm kicking lips. I should probably have known this. Uh, thanks for the intro. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've been an athlete for a long time, Ray. So my days in the spotlight are way past me. So I don't care too much to talk about it. But uh, there, I guess there is a bit of a history. Um, I've been a Taekwondo athlete for most of my life. I started when I was about five years old. I retired around uh, early 20s. Uh, I Won nationals, uh, placed in Commonwealth, uh, U.S. Open, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, when it came to powerlifting, I did win nationals as a 59-kilo lifter and won the North American powerlifting championships. So that was kind of the big highlights of my powerlifting career. But, uh, yeah. And, and are you still competing? No. Why, why you put those days behind you, man? You're moving forward, just coaching, focusing on that? focusing on coaching, focusing on my athletes, and uh, I'm just far too broken to continuously lift. Is that right? You still kicking people on the head from time to time? Um, Coming out people, of retirement sure. every now and then? <laughs> short people. But, short um, people? <laughs> <laughs> I can't lift my leg that high anymore. I've seen clips, for real. I've seen clips of you. Um, cause when I found out, like, I love Olympic Taekwondo, it's full contact. And that's the stuff that's like the crazy, people leaving their feet, throwing all types of crazy kicks. And, um, I was like, dude, is that the type of Taekwondo you did? And you're like, oh yeah. And you sent me some clips. I was like, holy smokes, dude. Like, like a straight out of an action movie style. You're on the mats fighting people. And I was like, wow, Alfred, I didn't know this about you, my man. Cause I'm, I mean, I love like martial arts, the USC boxing, the whole nine, but, uh, yeah, man, it's, it's crazy. How, and also, so how old are you, Alfred? I am 36. Right. And that rattled me because I thought you were like 22. But um, <laughs> yeah, by the time you're 36, you have lived like you've, you've, you've gained some, you've accumulated experiences, right? Where people are like, oh, I didn't know this about you. Yeah, I had a life before powerlifting. This happened, that happened. And then by the time people get to know you, it's like, oh, wow, man, that's a whole lot of background to sink your teeth in. And, um, and Jason, well, actually, you know what? Let me get to, let me get to Arian and then we'll ask you about how the strength guys came to be. But Aaron, I still remember the first, I think this was the first time me and you actually spoke was Calgary World Championships. I'd seen you before at Worlds, but um, we didn't know each other very well. Not that we knew each other well in Calgary, but I remember the Canadian, I was talking to the Canadian team and um, I forget who was facing who at the World Championships. And they, the Canadian team were all kind of like in the warm-up room. I'd go by, I'd go around the back uh, before the, before the live stream started and just to get a little bit of us what are we looking at here fellas i'll talk to whatever teams but i was talking to the canadian team here and they were kind of like murmuring it's like what's up and they're like fucking uh arians over there on the u.s team coaching and i'm like so what's up with the, what does that mean and they're like 
this guy's a wizard when it comes to handling. I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, man, he's good. It's going to be tight. If it's tight, that makes a difference. If it's not tight, um, whatever. If you got a 50 kilo lead, someone's really got to drop the ball. But they anticipated a tight matchup. And I think they were hoping for uh, maybe a little less experienced or whatever handler, like this is going to be, this is going to be tight. This is going to be a good one. And, and team Canada doesn't have no slouches when it comes to coaches, man. We'd had a, I mean, Avi, um, obviously he's like literally wrote a playbook on these things uh, anyways. But I remember afterwards be like, Oh man, you know, team Canada was, was sweating you out there. You're, I hear you're the wizard with it. You're fairly humble with it, but uh Tell me, how did you end up getting into powerlifting and into coaching, Aaron? I was going to say, I'm not on the level of some of these guys like Alfred over here doing uh, other sports. So for me and pretty much any sport, I've always been like, you know, average, maybe slightly above average and uh, got into lifting weights to kind of get better at sports, you know, get bigger, stronger, you know, hit harder in football, that kind of stuff. And then so obviously, you know, transition more and more to the strength stuff rather than just like the bodybuilding stuff. And at Florida State University, we had a weightlifting club and we met Dr. Zordos, uh, who was getting his PhD there at that time. And he and I actually met him through a, uh, a forum, abcbodybuilding.com forums. And like, oh, he's like, yeah, I'm getting my PhD thesis at FSU. He's like, come to my office one time and we'll like, you know, talk about lifting and stuff like that. So we got into lifting, talk about lifting. He found out about the weightlifting club and he knew Matt and Susie. Gary from, from Baltimore, from that's where he's from and from their gym SSPT. So they told him like, Hey, there, there's powerlifting USAPL runs events in Florida. You guys should enter a team. And so he got the, basically the club to get a bunch of lifters to sign up and go compete. And it, it's really different these days that people like trying like pick their federation or see what the records are or this and that. And for us, it was just like, Dr. Zoros told us, Hey, we're doing this competition, this date, this location. And we're just like, okay. And we all kind of just signed up and did it. And so that's kind of just how we all jumped into power thing. It's crazy. So Zordas, uh, am I pronouncing that right? Zordas? Yeah. Okay. So there's like a lineage here. Uh, when the data strength boys were on the podcast, I believe, were they not working with him as well? Yeah. Cause a, a couple of them are at still, at, I believe at Florida Atlantic university, which is where he's a professor right now. And then uh, Lane was on the podcast last podcast. And he was talking about a lineage with him, Ben escrow, like um, you, you start to see a little bit of, of commonality here. I wonder, we'll get into it in a little bit. If there's um, it's just maybe a lot of people on the same page in terms of programming and volume and uh, you know, some of the same ideals in terms of it, or, I mean, maybe that's where you all started and then you branch off from there and start developing your own style. But um, so you started powerlifting yourself and then were you coaching at the time or did you, were you like, I want to be a strength conditioning coach? Everyone always asks like, oh, when did you become a coach? As if it's like a like a specific date or something like that. But when we're all part of the Wave Thing Club, we were all like kind of helping each other out. Especially before Dr. Zordos came on, we were all just doing our own programming. It was just like whoever looked online and found like, oh, let's do Wendler 531 or let's do Small Love or let's do whatever. And like, okay, I watched this video on squat technique. Let me help out the new people on technique. Then we all started going on Dr. Zoris's programming and at competitions, it was kind of like, you know, if we're all competing, we help each other out during the sessions. If someone is off, like, you know, Dr. Zoris would handle everyone or I would handle everyone. So it's kind of a mix like that and slowly just get more and more into coaching. Like our first nationals was 2012 and four of us went. And so we were all like, you know, different sessions. And so like, you know, after our, 
uh, one person competes, you kind of coach the other people. Or like, you know, if I was the last person, I'd coach uh, Dr. Zoda's first. And then like, then they would handle me. So it was just mixing back and forth like that. And I kind of liked it more and more as like, you know, I learned more about it as far as the technique and programming and learning from Dr. Zoros and seeing what he's doing. And then just like, you know, new people come in. So then I had to like pass the information down to them. It's interesting um, how you guys all start. Well, I mean, you and Alfred started as competitors, but then eventually started moving into um, coaching more and more. And then I remember Aaron, you saying like, Man, I don't even train. And Jessica Bittner, remember she was on the podcast. She's like, holy shit, you lift weights every day? I did, you train every day with that? And you were like, because uh, she caught you in the gym actually training. Like, how did you, did you just like fall in love with coaching more? Like the programming and the analytics of it and obviously handling? I mean, part of it is just getting more and more involved and not just coaching the other stuff because my last raw meet was December, 2015, where I had my best total. And then after that, I was like, I want to mess around with equipped a little bit just to like learn the equipment from like the coaching standpoint and, and be able to like tell someone also like, you know, refereeing, knowing the different pieces of equipment, everything like that. And just something fun to try different. But when I was doing the equip stuff, I was also getting more into refereeing, being a national team coach, meet directing, going around all these meets. So it's hard to stay consistent when training, when you're like traveling around and you feel like crap when you're in another country and the time zone's all messed up. And yeah. when I'm at worlds, all I want to do instead is like, you know, hang out with everyone and drink and stuff afterwards, not go and train. <laughs> So it just turned into like being less consistent, still doing some equipped meets and then transitioning over to just doing bench nationals. Cause it's like the meet where I have the least amount of people that I have to coach. And so I can kind of just go and do it on my own and it's easier to want to train. And so it's just slowly deteriorating into like, you know, being busy and laziness and like, I'm not good anyways. So why do I care? Like, you know, to be competitive or get my numbers up for me, it's just more about if I'm training or doing something, it's like, can I learn something from it? Like, you know, trying out reverse grip bench press or trying out those like long pause, large and presses or trying out equip lifting and then doing the competitions is just to show people and show my own lifters that like, you know, I can still have good technique and I can still pick smart attempts even if I'm not the strongest person. And, and the thing is too, you could like come to the realization, look at, all right, um, genetically, I could, I could work super hard, but genetically speaking, I'm not going to become world-class as a lifter, but you sure as hell became world-class in terms of a coach. I mean, you, uh, and that's just not your awards, like other coaches game day, you know, and programming, obviously you've um, programmed people to world records, et cetera. So it's one of those deals where it's like, I can be the best in the world at one thing, or, I mean, lifting's for fun. You don't do everything just to be the best in the world, but it's one of those tough decisions. Like you only have so much time in a day where you're going to focus your time. And um, I mean, you're carving out a bit of a legacy here in terms of coaching. So what the hell? Shoe yeah. fits, kick it. Um, <laughs> in, in, in all sports, if I kind of like generalize it, I was never good at offense. I was always good at defense. And like, I was always like the, the hustle person, like, you know, like getting rebounds and like, you know, tackling people and all that kind of stuff like that. You can't do that in powerlifting. There's really no, there's no, there's no defense. And like you said, you can only hustle so hard yeah. if you don't have the, the genetics, then you're not, you're going to get hit, basically hit your ceiling and not have anywhere to go. But that stuff can help me for coaching because I was trying to learn from everyone. I was trying to like study whatever I could. I was trying to go to these meets and like help out as a, as an assistant coach for the, for the national team. I paid for myself to go to South Africa. You know, it was like $2,000 wherever to go to South Africa, just so I can like be in the warm room and load weight. So those things then help me for coaching. Yeah, there, there is no um, Floyd Mayweather all defensive powerlifting where it's like he never misses a lift. Now, when you add up his lifts, it don't add to much, but he never misses a lift. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. But um, it is true. The, when you're talking about 
paying your way on to like a, you start off as a volunteer for the national team coaching and showing up at worlds. I remember Matt um, on the Canadian team was uh, I think it was Killeen, Texas having a, well, a couple of the coaches, the junior coaches, not the head coaches for team Canada. And they would just fly out themselves as well, just to soak it up, just to be like, let me be around the world-class athletes, watch how the game day prep goes, take a look at their sheets, have to do all the scouting, have to report back being like, here are the attempt selections that I made. Um, here's how it ended up. And then they actually do an analysis. I remember Avi was on here, uh, the head coach of Canada for a little while. And he's like, they would do analyze why did you do this attempt selection you know what this is how it ended up what were you placed going in where were you placed afterwards stuff like that's when you learn like you can talk about it as much but when you're thrown in the mix and have to start doing these things you're gonna and you have to actually be accountable in all the powerlifting world's watching like ooh, so-and-so just bombed and arian was handling them like that's you know it's a whole other level man you are going to have to level up i don't got to tell you gentlemen you've all been down there but um and you show how far you're committed when you start paying your way, being like, I'm going in. Let me learn. I will pay myself. It's almost like you're paying for your tuition almost, right? This is the school of hard knocks when it comes to handling. And you went all in on it. Um, Jason, how did the strength guys begin? Yes. Yeah, so uh, once I finished high school, I, I knew I started lifting when I was in grade 10. Or, yeah, grade 10, sorry. And uh, I knew probably within a few months that I wanted to be a trainer, a coach as my, as my women. Uh, and I wanted to go to school for it. So um, immediately after high school, I enrolled in a personal trainer certificate program at Mount Royal University uh, here in Calgary, Alberta. And um, by the end of that, so it was, it was three full-time semesters at university, take your anatomy, physiology, uh, strength training, cardiovascular training, biomechanics, stuff like that. Um, by the end of that, my classmate, Anthony Walker, and I uh, decided that we wanted to do something together. Uh, back then, the thought was uh, that we wanted to own a gym. And so I was like, well, to be honest, I, I found this periodization stuff quite fascinating uh, in strength training class. And um, I want to go to school. I want to learn some more about it so that I can do better at this. And I thought that it would be a good idea while I was in school to start a brand on Twitter. Uh, I was never, never intended to be a company or anything. Uh, just wanted to just wanted to network. Uh, and Anthony Walker thought of the name, the Strength Guys. So I started a Twitter account called Strength Guys. And um, I started every single day um, posting my thoughts on strength training, what I was learning, what I was doing in my own training, uh, which at the time was under Lane Norton. Uh, and I was training for uh, natural bodybuilding. Um, and then over time, I, I just became more and more interested in strength training rather than, rather than bodybuilding. Um, within about a year of putting out information every single day, people were requesting. They were like, can I pay you to write programs for me? Well, we're not a business, you know? And uh, I said that to a few people. We don't have a service. We don't offer anything. And then I was like, well, that's not very smart. Like I'm currently making zero dollars. So, uh, They're like, take my money, sir. <laughs> that, perhaps I should say yes to someone who's offering me their money. 
Um, and some of our some of our first clients ended up growing into uh, quite popular names in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Uh, Leanna Carr, Jeff Nippard. Uh, we had Mark Martin, uh, who was very into into bodybuilding, um, but he's actually a NASCAR Hall of Famer, uh, and so he wanted to to hire me for for bodybuilding training. Uh, so we did that. Uh, that year, he placed third in the Daytona 500 uh, after a few months of training with us. So, dude, you're a strength and conditioning coach for a NASCAR driver. This is this is the, your resume is thorough, dude. Because I know you're with obviously the Calgary Flames, and but that's a thorough resume, my man. Yeah, I, I mean, at the time, I was I was uh, in over my head, um, but I, I think you said something when Arian told his story about being in the fire, and I, I think that's really important that you expose yourself uh, to these experiences because uh, you know if, if you figure it out and you win that's great and if you fail horribly uh, but you perceive it the right way um, you can make a lot of good out of that experience out of the failure as well and um, yeah I was I was 20 years old uh, I was sitting in uh, the office of the general manager at Michael Waltrip Racing in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, interviewing for the head strength and conditioning coach job uh, for their pickers uh, on their NASCAR team. And, um, I wasn't a fan of motorsport back then. I, I am now. I got into it, uh, but I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go down there and I'm gonna give it my best shot, even though I'm not a you know not a lifer in NASCAR by any means. Um, same with powerlifting, like within two years of, of coaching bodybuilders, um, Jeff Nippert, who's now got millions of subscribers on YouTube, uh, he tells me, I, I want you to make me strong. And I was like, well, Jeff, I've, I've done the training, but I, I haven't competed in powerlifting. I, I just want you to know that. It's like, I, I trust you. I, I like the content you put out, like, let's do this. And I was like, okay. Um, so without ever having competed in powerlifting, uh, Jeff Nippard and I showed up at Canadian Nationals, uh, that was in, um, St. Catharines, Ontario. So I think it's like 2013, 2014. Yeah, fudge. I, this is going back, but yeah, it is, dude. Uh, I didn't yeah. even, wait, how old was Jeff at the time? Cause Jeff looks young as hell right now. I think he was like 24, 25. Oh, wow. Okay. He did open. Um, and he placed second to Kojo Gannon, but in the process, he had added like 80, 90 kilos to his total through our training together. Um, and another, another fellow in, in Rochester, Minnesota, um, Taylor Atwood saw that. And so did John Downing, Columbus, Ohio. Um, and so they signed on a few months later. So they, when, when they saw it, they were watching the Canadian Nationals, or they were following along the social media and just... We're, they were following along with Jeff and, and just the general buzz in the community about what was happening, what our group was doing. Um, so John, I think, heard of us more from like the powerlifting circle, whereas Taylor heard of us because uh, honestly he thought that like the bodybuilders I trained looked sick and he wanted to, to get in on that. Um, so they signed up and started to assemble a team. A, a few months later, I, I met Alfred and, and Alfred signed on originally. Alfred was, uh, I, I trained him for many years and 
we went to national level and, and international level competitions uh, together. Um, so I, I started to assemble this, this team around me of uh, really good lifters. And um, then what followed was honestly, it was a lot of, it was, it was mixed success. We had our, we had our highs, but we had our lows. Um, Taylor, Taylor and I competed at our first uh, national championship in uh, Denver, Colorado. I think this is 2014 now. Um, I had never competed in powerlifting still. And here I am handling Taylor at, uh, at Raw Nationals. Uh, he won. We didn't even know that we could have beat the world champion that day. Like I was completely ignorant, didn't know, but of, of course Taylor smashed the competition. Um, got ready for the Arnold Classic, uh, gave Taylor a lot of training volume. Uh, looking back on it, probably now an inappropriate amount of training volume, given that his technique wasn't in place and everything like that. Um, showed up freakishly strong, bombed on depth at the competition. Hang on, I want you to say, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so let's hang in the, let's hang in here for one second, because this is a good story. So at the time, and people, I don't know if some people will remember, some people won't, Josh Hancock, Canadian boy, who was a 74, a junior world champion. Um, and he was he was pretty big on social media at the time. And I think him and Taylor were getting into it a little bit, um, if I remember correctly, because Taylor had been on the podcast back then. It was talking about Josh Hancock too. And um, there was some a little bit of smack talk back and forth, I believe. And you also showed up... <laughs> Tell, tell them, tell them how you showed up. Yeah, so we we got into it uh, with Josh online, uh, us all being young kids at the time, and Taylor and I wanted to show Josh a lesson because yeah. we believed that Taylor was a stronger athlete than Josh, and so that was that motivated us and, um, you know, in, in any other sport you look at coaches dress nicely you know they they wear their their they wear their suit and tie behind the bench like you look at like now I'm I'm doing a, a season in the NHL like we wear a suit and tie to every game home or away because uh, it reflects the importance and the significance of the event and by the time the Arnold Classic rolled around with uh, Josh Hancock uh, I had competed, so I was, you know, I, I had now experienced this myself, which I think was really important. Um, but I, I, I wasn't well, well versed in powerlifting culture, right? I, I, I didn't understand that component of it. Uh, I'd still only been to, I think, three or four competitions, uh, two of them being nationals and, and one being uh, some regional championship and one being a local meet. And so I was like, you know what? Like coaches dress nice in every other sport. So I'm going to wear a sweater vest. <laughs> sweater vest? I thought it was a suit. Was it a yeah, sweater yeah, vest? Yeah, it wasn't a suit. It was a sweater vest and uh, a little pea coat. Uh, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. While we're on the topic of you dressing up, let's go back to the first nationals where I met you in Halifax, I think it was. Well, that was, that was, that was after this. I never met Jason before. I see this guy rolling, Every, you know, you know, your typical powerlifting meet, right? Everybody's wearing t-shirts, shorts, track suits and whatnot. This guy rolls in, in like a suede blue 
jacket, <laughs> khakis, dress shoes. Like, I thought this dude looked like Captain Crunch. I'm like, who is this guy? And he comes in, like, he introduces himself, shakes his hand. I'm like, all right, cool. And I'm just like, is he like the president? Like, I, I don't understand because. In Taekwondo, when we kind of like what Jason mentioned in, in Taekwondo for a competition, you have to dress up, you know, minimally, you have to wear dress pants, like polos and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm kind of used to that. But in the pilot team, I'm still kind of getting used to it. And I'm used, just used to seeing all the coaches dressed very casually. And then Jason rolled in. I'm like, who is this dude? And then I found out that he actually got some flack for dressing too nice. And he had to like dress down the next day. Listen, listen, let me tell you my Jason story when I first met him. 2014 full ball gown. Okay, full ball gown in the warm-up room. I was like, who is this guy? What's going on here? Um, no, but it, it's true. It, in all other sports, you dress in, in the in the players also for events, dress in suits, and it's almost so. Um, you coming from a background where you're cut like as a strength and conditioning uh, coach, and you're you're looking at all these other sports, you're thinking, let me, maybe I'm leveling up this thing. Maybe if I do this, everybody else, you know, but I, well, okay. We'll get back to your story about the Josh head cut, Arnold, but I want to give you a spinoff after that. <laughs> but so, so what's going on in the Arnold against high cut? And there's yeah. trash talking so, too. Uh, I think it's a combination of, at this time I was like 22. Um, I hadn't experienced, I, I mean, I've, I've had personal loss and everything in my family and life, but I haven't really experienced like, hardships in the world you know like I'm still a kid still a still a puppy and I I need some adversity uh to overcome uh to to grow myself and to grow my character and uh I think it was a combination of, of many things like I, I I definitely I I thought like uh the coaches I look up to in in sports um Pete Carroll Pep Guardiola um you know, people like this, Daryl Sutter in hockey, like, you know, they look like professionals uh, when they're coaching. So I thought that, uh, of course, it was also, uh, in hindsight, quite a bit of narcissism. Uh, <laughs> that way. Uh, it's not something that, uh, it's not something that you do, and it, it's not necessarily respectful to the, the culture of powerlifting. Um, but I, I have no regrets about doing that because experiencing that that failure and that embarrassment uh, twice um, and, and showing up to meets that way and, and just learning the lesson the hard way, uh, it made me, I think I had too much success out of the gates relative to the amount of experience uh, that I had in, in competing uh, and also in coaching. You know, I... Frick, I'd, I'd worked in NASCAR. I trained national champions in, in, in the States and the USAPL and uh, won the, an Asian championship with Clinton Lee uh, in Singapore. And I think had a successful business already, you know, and it, it was just too much too soon. Uh, and so actually, like when I met Alfred uh, in Newfoundland at Nationals that day uh, was kind of the day where it all changed for me. Um, so people are like, Jason, like, this is too much. Like, you need to, you're way too high on your horse, basically. Um, and so our, the strength guys entered into a downward spiral uh, for three or four years where dead in the water, like nothing, nothing really dynamic happening. Uh, 
Um, I'd say the only, the only good things that were happening was with the few clients that we did have, uh, we were still sticking together. Uh, we were still growing. Um, but I, I think from those initial experiences at the Arnold and at Nationals, you know, uh, it definitely took me a lot longer to um, earn some earn some respect as someone who, who knew what he was doing. And looking back on it at the time, I, I had half a clue, but I, I didn't have a full clue, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I think it's important to, to reflect on these things. Um, so when my when the strength guys completely unraveled, uh, I, I'm like, this is now the third time that I've rebuilt this company in the last six years. Uh, we're going on our, our 10 year anniversary here in October. Um, this is now the, the third time I've rebuilt it. Uh, I'm gonna rebuild it with people who are really loyal, uh, who've been with me for a long time. Um, and I, I'm, you know, live by the live by the sword, die by the sword. Like, you know, this is my crew. And so Alfred, John, Taylor, uh, we had Kristen Dunsmore at the time. Uh, that was my team to rebuild. And um, then we brought on many other uh, good folks in the in the coming years. And uh, we started to find better solutions to how we were coaching. Um, the results started to improve a lot. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to, to be here today. I'm a lot more humble than I was back, you know, and in, in 2014, 2015, when I experienced those hard failures, um, three-time world champion coach, 16-time national champion coach, uh, and coach of the best lifter from 2019 IPF Worlds. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of being in the fire, a lot of failure, um, a lot of, of good people on our team uh, who contribute to creating something that's bigger than any of us. Uh, and that's kind of the story of, that's my journey. And I think that's also our, our collective like TSG journey in a nutshell. It's, it's interesting. So, well, one thing I wanna add. So Josh Hancock, when I first met him in real life, uh, not social media, my man was rocking a suit at the Canadian Eastern Nationals. And that was after the Atwood situation. So you rubbed off on him a little bit. Even if you guys didn't have the outcome you wanted, he picked up some style notes and he's like, I think I want to carry myself the same way. Um, but you're 100% right in terms of, uh, there's a quote, Mike Tyson says it, but I don't think Mike Tyson made it. But it's, we are not born humble, but we are born to be humbled. We have to be humbled. And, um, and it's not a bad thing. You need this. You don't think you do. So when you come out the gate with early success, uh, you're, it's better to be checked early, you know, to, to, before things get too carried away, before you explode into, you know, especially with social media these days, you can explode quick. Some people explode with followings real quick, but when they go through that tough point, if they already have a hundred thousand eyeballs on them and then you start crashing and burning, which is a natural part of life, you stick around long enough, there's going to be ebbs and flows. Then it feels everything's augmented. And it's like, holy shit, how do I bounce back? I'm losing clients. Every failure is under the spotlight. It's too much. Whereas it's okay because it's bound to happen, but it's better off. You're better off to get it somewhat early days, right? Get some early success, 
get a little cocky, get it taken away from you, get humbled, have to adjust, be forced to adjust and be like, what's going wrong? Eval like that self-evaluation process, only with a loss are you going to do self-evaluation and really grow. Because if everything's rocking and rolling, just moving forward, let's go with the same template. But when things aren't going well, you're like, you start pulling in people. Let me humble myself. I'm, I feel humble right now. I need to pull in other people around me. I need a team. I need more eyeballs on this. How do we approach this from a scientific approach, you know, and start start uh, you know, diving into like, how do we better ourselves? I want to get into that in one second about um, the transition process when you really started, you know, moving into your programming, expanding on it, and some of the things you found in terms of with your athletes, et cetera. But real quick, I do want to double back to Alfred, though, to top off these this origin story. Alfred, um, when you were a Taekwondo athlete and you transitioned into powerlifting, and then you transitioned into a coach, Tell me about that transition, why you got into powerlifting and then why you got into coaching and ended up with the strength guys. So I had no idea what powerlifting was straight up. Um, I competed as a 50, 54 kilo fighter. Uh, I'm naturally kind of short, 5'4". And I used to fight flyweight, which is 58 kilos. And uh, when I made the provincial team, uh, our coach took one look at me and just immediately said, you're fighting 54. I never dieted down before, not to that low. Like it was, I already had to die down to 58. And he just looked at me, he's like straight up 54. I'm like, okay. <laughs> we didn't have a choice in Taekwondo. Like it's very military style. Uh, the coach tells you what to do. You just do it. So I did it. Um, not Definitely not the safest way. I will definitely say that. But we had 24 hour way in so that that gave me some grace period um after i retired i i was still very tiny and i got tired of fitting extra smalls and smalls in clothes so like any other dude i just want to get jacked want to get want to fill out a little bit uh, i do have a degree in kinesiology so i couldn't stand just being in the gym doing arm day chest day i, I needed some structure I, I also have a little bit of ocd um, little um so i needed some structure to follow so i kind of mocked up my own little spd program uh, i liked the idea of doing compound movements and just so happened to be squat bench and deadlift um and my ocd really got carried away i'm like well if i'm squatting i want to make sure i have like good shoes so i researched found like romelios and then like all these other stuff like belts and all that um and people at the gym start asking me if i'm a powerlifter. i'm like hell's powerlifting i knew what olympic lifting was and it was very ignorant of me at the time but i, I had no idea and once i found out what powerlifting was that's how i started competing and my girlfriend at not at the time still is uh she never had any athletic background in her life she's always been kind of a cardio bunny just kind of recreational sports here and there she wanted to get into lifting too uh, so that's kind of how i got thrown into coaching it was probably the like you want to talk about failure like that that's the <laughs> best way to go down like never coach powerlifting before and then start coaching a significant other so everything that could have went oh, wrong no. went wrong and coaching taekwondo is totally different we're very hands-on with coaching taekwondo we, we you know and we're definitely a lot more aggressive when we're coaching athletes you know like we don't care you just yell at your athletes you push them harder 
Powerlifting, not not so much. You can't really physically push them that much, or else something bad will happen. And especially if you live with them, they, that ride home is very awkward, <laughs> yeah. or even very aggressive. She's like, "Watch the tone of your voice, sir." <laughs> uh, that's a nice way to put it. Right. Okay. <laughs> so that's kind of how the the uh, transition went. And um, sorry, what was the, the other question? So you asked. Uh, like, so so you. You started coaching and I guess you started coaching by uh, first off with like your significant other and yourself. Yeah. And then how did you end up, cause you did go to school for kinesiology and how did you end up um, with the strength guys? And then from there, obviously blossoming and, and, and being the coach you are now. Uh, so it kind of started with uh, the success that I had and my girlfriend had, uh, we were both at the time, there wasn't many smaller lifters, uh, at least in our, our province. Uh, a lot of them were the bigger guys. Uh, and I'm used to cutting weight already. So looking at the numbers, my wall, if I drop like two pounds, I break all the national records or provincial records at a time. I'm like, well, that's easy. I can, I know, I know I cut weight easily. So I did that and, uh, definitely caught some flack for it at, at the time. Cutting weight wasn't a big thing. So people were like, well, why are you doing that for like the, the sports to get heavier, so get stronger. So I took a different spin on it and that's, that caught some attention. A lot of people start asking me, I'm like, well, why did you diet down? I'm like, well, I'm not that competitive as a head bigger lifter. So when I diet down, I'm more competitive. And people found that approach intriguing and saw that uh, my girlfriend was winning. I was doing well. So they started inquiring. And I, I had no idea that coaching for powerlifting was even a thing at the time. So I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll write you a program. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'll, I'll write you a program. And, uh, I started getting a little more attention and it got to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm starting to write programs a little more often. I, I need to be charging a little bit for my time at least. Cause I'm spending a decent amount of time doing this. And I charge like 20 bucks a program or something. And, um, that's kind of how I first got started. And over time, I'm like, okay, there has to be a more efficient way to do it. So I started getting more involved with the research side of things, uh, looking at uh, papers and whatnot. And that's why I kind of came across the strength guys because they were known for being very science-based, data-driven. And I started looking more into their content and that kind of inspired a lot of my training and my programming. And it got to a point where I couldn't really handle doing my own coaching or my own programming and my athletes. So I reached out to Jason and uh, because he lived in Calgary, which is a two hour drive from me. And I just touched base with him. Like, Hey, can you, can you coach me? Uh, I, I don't have time for this. And my head's not in the right space when I'm doing this. And um, so that's, that's kind of how I got my foot in the door with the strength guys. And, you know, during that time we would hop on calls here and there, or just have general discussions. And I kind of bounce ideas back and forth. And, um, he, he liked where my head was at. Uh, there was a lot of refining to do in the, the way I was doing things, but he kind of liked where my head was at. And I, I just inquired, I'm like, Hey, you know what? Do you guys hire often? And he mentioned like, Oh, here and there, but nothing, you know, there's nothing concrete set. I'm like, Oh, well, if there's ever opportunity, I would like to coach. And one day he presented me with an opportunity that, Hey, do you want, do you want to give this a shot? And, um, I jumped on the idea and the rest was history. Yeah, I'd say for for me, like the number one criteria uh, to work here on the strength guys, uh, I was raised to always do my best work uh, and to take a lot of pride in my work. Uh, and if you want to work with us, that's the one thing I have to see in you. Uh, and then the other thing is is integrity and honesty. Like you've got to do what you're what you say uh, you're going to do. 
Um, and I, I saw that a lot in, in Alfred and, and everyone else who is uh, currently on our team. So um, that was a, a big thing for me in the beginning when Alfred came on. One thing I noticed, well, first off, um, what's your girlfriend's name again, Alfred? Rhonda, Rhonda Wong. Okay, there we go. Uh, yeah, you got to give a shout out just in case she uses podcasts and she only, <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, you got, one thing I noticed about your coaches, like the, the educational background on these people. I mean, you guys aren't just hiring people with bro science in the background there, Jason, like you guys vet. I remember asking you at one point because um, I was asking about your staff because you, your staff at this point, talking about where you started is worldwide. You have coaches all over, um, you know, us asia wherever and then i was like and you're telling me some of their backgrounds and i was like dude what's the vetting process here like and you're like well you know we, we there's a lot into this you know you hire one bad coach and then it reflects poorly but what is kind of some of the vetting process when you're taking on coaches yeah um in for so many years it was just feel um i was i was doing my best to put out content and our other coaches were and I think uh, who you are attracts attracts your crowds, uh, and so I mean, like to give you examples, like Jonathan Chua and, and Kedrick Kwan, like they were they interned for our group originally, and then they they started working for us, and um, they've really grown their careers uh, since they finished their internships with us. Um, nowadays, I mean, we have a formal you know, we announced that we're, we're hiring, we have a formal, you know, send in your resume and CV and, and we'll interview you. But um, I, I think the, one of the advantages we have at PSG is uh, all of the, the experience that we collectively have. And uh, in particular, I know how professional sports works. I know how professional sports teams function. Um, so back in, in 2016, I interned under Brett Bartholomew at Jay Glazer's uh, Unbreakable Performance Center um, on Sunset Boulevard in LA, actually. So I was living in Hollywood for a few months. And oh, my man went to Hollywood. Yeah, we got to see, uh, I got to meet so many cool people, Randy Kutter, Kung Lee, Chuck Liddell, uh, Daniel Fugier. Um, in the NFL, I mean, we had like Vaughn Miller, Danny Amendola, Richie Incognito, uh, I got to meet Mike Tomlin and Joey Porter. I actually had Mexican with them at lunch one day. <laughs> so it's a cool experience. But from, from this experience, the one thing that Brett Bartholomew uh, showed me is just how it's done in pro sports. Uh, this is how we do it with, you know, Super Bowl MVP. She's got a $90 million contract. Like this is how he trains this process. I took a lot from that the sports science and I, I started to integrate it into what I was doing with TSG into our work as a team. Um, so we created our own athlete medicine system, which now, I mean, you could spend 20 to $60,000 on an athlete medicine system software. Uh, and, and that's what pro sports teams spend for this. But I taught myself how to make it for free from scratch you know, and, and to give us uh, an advantage over the competition. Um, and then I, I interned with Daniel Noble in uh, just outside of Toronto, runs a hockey academy where uh, Mitch Marner on the Toronto Maple Leafs and Anthony Sorelli on the Tampa Bay Lightning, amongst uh, many other Hockey Canada uh, members play. 
so I, I was I started learning some more about the world of hockey and and how things are are ran there. Uh, and most recently, I've I've spent uh, two years inside the Calgary Flames organization, off season and on season. I built their sports science backend, so where they document all of the uh, player health and wellness and performance information. Um, so this is so beneficial from so many different aspects, but. Um, the main thing is I learned how an NHL team functions. So I, I get to see how our coaching staff goes about their business every day. I get to see how our medical staff goes about their business, how their, our equipment staff, how the strength staff. Um, and I, I, get to, I get to think about, okay, like this is what's happening at each time during the season, or this is how we're scouting. Uh, for an NHL draft, because I, I do those reports for the team as well. How can I integrate that with TSV to make us better? And I, I think that uh, bringing that, like, this is how it is in pro sports to TSV uh, is very in line with the original vision that we had as a company, which is that I wanted to do things better than they had ever been done before in powerlifting. And that's not to sound arrogant. That's my goal. That's what I'm striving for when delivering and constructing my service that we provide. Um, and so I was like, well, we're going we're gonna to have to look outside of powerlifting for the inspiration on what that is. Because I, I don't think that anyone in powerlifting right now is, is currently, including us, I don't think we're currently doing the absolute best that we can. Uh, I think there's more untapped potential. Uh, for the effectiveness of, of coaching. And so it's about chasing that and, and innovating towards that. Let me let me do, okay, I want to ask you one quick question here. I want to follow up on that. Let me do a quick pee break though. Okay, gentlemen, if anyone wants to take a break, take it right now. I'm going to put a pause on this. Uh, yes, yeah, so what you were when you were saying about essentially leveling up and all the powerlifting leveling up, I had said this previously in, in a podcast um, regarding Taylor Atwood. So people talk about what it looks like when Taylor Atwood's out back in the warm-up room. And um, there's a huge difference between some powerlifting coaches that have an Excel spreadsheet that's going to go out and it's just essentially a template they give to all their athletes and here you go. And there is no systems like you said you developed and we'll get into that in a second, but they're not developing testing protocols and systems and, and deciphering from there, which best way to go. It's more or less this work for so-and-so. So this should work for you. Um, this, so this person's roughly your body size. So I'll float you the same template as opposed to, you know, checking things out. And then when you said the way you looked at other sports, how they have all of those checks and balances in place and all those other members of the team contributing to make the person the best possible. Um, this reminds me of back in the day, and here's the MMA reference, it was going to come, but the MMA went through a huge learning curve when George St. Pierre came around. He said the old ways isn't working. He essentially had one major coach, like previously the, the, those athletes had one major coach, kind of like powerlifting, they kind of did what they did essentially off of a bro side style as well. And then George St. Pierre came along and this would be like the Taylor Atwood scenario where it's like, this isn't enough. Um, this isn't going to be bro science. We need real science. We need people who actually went to school with this. We need people and experts in all their different fields. He had a team around him 
all experts in their individual field and no stone was left unturned. And then all of a sudden it became so consistent on the top level, whereas previously he'd lose here and there. Um, you know, he lost Matt Hughes, lost a couple of key matches. He was so consistent every single time where opponents and opposition would not be. And then when people talk now about Taylor Atwood and they're like, look at, say what you want. He always shows up on point and consistent. They always, when I take a look, when I go back and I see you guys, your scouting files you have on people and the attempt selections and right down to the training, um, you know, checking out like food, sleep, you know, the intensity, the volume. And it's not just, in, it's too intuitive as well, but more than that, the science of it and logging this information and all the people you have surrounding him. And you see opposition in all different weight classes can have on and off days. But Taylor, when it comes to the big game, you know, I mean, numbers don't lie. You look at his USAPL performances, he's carving out a dynasty at US Raw Nationals. Back-to-back uh, -back world champion would be three times in a row if we didn't miss worlds last year because with all due respect to 74s, which is a stacked class, he had the biggest total um, and would have still been the guy to beat. And um, that's part of it, is you, you've leveled up on that. And to an extent, the rest of the powerlifting community hasn't yet. We still have people doing templates, floating them out to people, how did that feel? Okay, let's try this, you know, and, and trying to do it all. Certain people trying to do it all without doing a whole lot of research in certain fields, no educational background on it. And um, you guys decided we're not going that route. You wanted to level up. And in a way, early on, it was just presentation with wearing the suit, but I know where your mind was at. That same kid who showed up 22 years old with the suit still had the vision of this isn't where we should be. This isn't where we can be. I want to level up. And, and the suit was the first... You know, it was, it was on the surface, but beyond that, there was more. Let's talk about this a little bit, about the systems that you started developing uh, for the Calgary Flames, for powerlifting, for just period. Yeah, um, you're exactly right. I, I think people see what happens on competition day with our competitors, but what they don't see is um, the hundreds of hours that uh, we, are, we are all spending uh, in the background uh, trying to, to level up our game, to, to do better work, uh, to get better results, to get safer results. Um, and so over time, I mean, we've, we've uh, learned about sports science, uh, physical therapy, um, you know, nutrition, rapid weight loss. Uh, Kedrick is currently doing his PhD on it. Uh, game day coaching, uh, different approaches to coaching. Like all these things, um, our team has a culture of, of constantly learning and, and wanting to get better. And I think uh, that's what fuels uh, not just Taylor, but all of our athletes who have experienced long-term success. Um, that's what's fueling them in the background. So it's the part that you don't see. Um, now, with regards to our training system, I think one of the things that has, has really brought our group together uh, is uh, the work that Arian mentioned during his, um, during his introduction uh, under, under Mike Sordos. Um, we've had numerous members uh, of that kind of early 2010s uh, powerlifting scene in, in Florida uh, in our group with Ben Asgro and, and Chad Dolan and, and now Arian. And um, that 
linear periodize. So linear periodization is that you're going to do more volume in the preparatory or hypertrophy phase to use American terminology. And then you, as you transition closer to competition, you're going to do less volume and your high intensity work before competition to peak. Uh, that's linear periodization in a, in a nutshell. Um, it's a, the training system that we use is a combination and it's a, a modernized version with our touches of uh, what Mike Zardos and Ben Escrow were doing in the early 2010s. People like John Downing, Lee Norton, L.S. McLean, Ryan Doris, uh, Eli Burks. Uh, so the structure of it is linear over the course of a macro cycle, like a 12, 16 week competition prep. But every week you have your higher rep work, you have your strength work, and then sometimes you even have some power work as well so that you're developing the three, the three different qualities that are really important to long-term powerlifting success. So um, when Ben Escrow uh, joined our team, he brought in the daily undulating periodization system uh, that he was using, his mental model, because um, he, was, he was about ready to hang it up with coaching. He had won his world championships, won his national championships, uh, just wanted to, to go do something else. But before he did that, he wanted to, to leave his mental model of training with someone who would you know, take good care of it and grow it over time. Uh, and you know, I think we're all fortunate that he joined our team uh, and he, he mentored us and he helped us a lot. And um, we've been furthering that style of training, trying to add complements of, of athlete monitoring, workload monitoring, uh, biomechanical analysis, um, scouting, and, and uh, having the information advantage on game day. We're trying to add all those components to the training model to kind of take the ball, the mental model that Ben gave us and make it, make it basketball, make it something that's complete. Uh, and that's what we feel is the best training that we can possibly provide. Uh, so that's the goal. And, and that's a bit about our training system as well. And do you use like Arian previously to working with the strength guys, um, were you predominantly using like RPE percentages and how did you like to model your programming? I mean, the, the overall idea is, is the same thing that Jason's saying, because I learned a lot from Dr. Zordos on how he was doing his uh, daily undulating periodization. I was actually in, in a couple of studies, including the one at Florida State, where he did the different types of DUP of doing like hypertrophy power strength as a week versus like hypertrophy strength and power. And he, I even did one at Florida Atlantic University on RPE and how good beginners are at gauging RPE versus more advanced lifters. And so what the research showed is that beginners are not very good at gauging RP, which you can see sometimes online. Sometimes that could be, you know, ego and, and for social media, but sometimes it could just be, they don't understand where their actual RP 10 effort is and how to gauge based off of that, how they're feeling. So what I do with my lifters is a combination of, you know, depending on how experienced they are and how comfortable they feel with RPE, I may give them all RPE or maybe RPE with a uh, estimate of where they should be as far as a percentage on an average day. And for some of my lifters, like for example, for Sarah Brenner, she's like scared of RPE. She doesn't want to do it. She's like, just tell me the percentages, what way to do, and I'll do it. So for all her competition lifts and then the close variations, she does all percentages for all, pretty much all my lifters for accessory work. 
um, because I don't know what accessory exercise they're picking, for example, for triceps or something like that, then they will do it based on RPE and select whatever exercise and kind of like warm up to whatever they can feel like RPE seven or eight. And, and how important is it also to give these athletes a little bit of leeway um, and fellas, anybody can answer this question, by the way, but um, like, if you have, obviously there's certain things that you need from them to do in the programming. Like I need you to squat this many times a week based off of what I'm seeing. And they, even if they get pushed back, you, you know, you're kind of like, look at, unless we're talking injury here, I need you to do certain things uh, because the numbers don't lie, right? You see the trending, but also do you allow some leeway in terms of, I need, I need some tricep work, some, some accessory work. I'm going to allow you to start taking on some accessories that you find fun to do because you're going to do it. Or, or how tight is it? Does it depend on athlete to athlete? I mean, uh, I I can, go ahead, Alfred. Um, for me, I, I like to give some leeway, especially in the main lifts, but also the accessories as well. For the main lifts, just because so many things can happen, like your life can be stressful, like especially right now with COVID, a lot of uncertainties, and that adds a lot of stress to people's lives that may or may not influence their training or maybe just training at a less than ideal uh, location. Some people are training in a storage unit. So they're, you know, based off of their situation, they might not be able to uh, perform as they want to. So I usually give a little bit of leeway there as long as they maintain kind of like a seven to eight RPE-ish, feel free to adjust the weight accordingly. And with accessory wise, as long as they kind of take care of like the big stones, if they feel they need a little bit of extra oomph to, so if they need a little bit of extra tricep work or they want some rear delt work for aesthetics or whatever it is, I'll let them add that in as long as it doesn't really interfere with the, the bulk of the training. What were you going to say, Erin? Uh, well, I was going to say, I don't know if I would call the, the word leeway, but maybe I call it compromise because personally, I like to still have it in the program. So if someone says like, Hey, I want to do biceps or Hey, I want to do calves or something like that. That's not in there. Um, I don't just say, okay, that's fine. Go do calves where you want. I'm a little bit OCD. Like Alfred, like I still want to put it in there. I'll put a line in the, in the program and put calves, whatever, three sets of 12 RP <laughs> six to seven. And so that I can, when I look at a week or when I look at a month, I know everything that's being done. Same thing for a lot of my lifters. If they have to do cardio, I'll put it as a slot on there. Okay. They're doing cardio after, you know, their, whatever their squat session, you know, 25 to 30 minutes, just so I can see everything. And so I, I like to know everything that's going on. So if they let me know and say, Hey, I want to do this or okay. And do that, then okay. I'll, I'll, I'll document same thing on, on the main list. Sometimes lifters will say like, Oh, my gym doesn't, I went to a gym. They don't have the 1.25 kilo plates. Can I just, you know, go up to the highest, whatever that's fine. Or if I give them a program in pounds and they go to a gym one time that has kilogram plates, like, Hey, should I, you know, do the lower or the higher? And I go, just go based on how you feel. If you're feeling good that day, go the higher pound conversion for the kilogram plates. If you feel bad, go lower. And when you have, um, obviously to an extent, uh, and I've already outlaid, like you, you've got a bit of a lineage here, Jason, with, um, where everyone's kind of getting their, their models from, but when you're taking on coaches, um, do you do like, it's part of the vetting process being like, okay, look, it, I know you're good, but you also don't want somebody who's kind of dancing to your own, their own beat, right? Like, um, Arian seemed to be a perfect match because I've seen him when he comes into the handling that he's thorough. Uh, he comes from the same lineage in terms of, you know, the models they're using, but is there times when you sit down and you're like, look, you're a phenomenal coach, but I'm not sure we're on the same page. Like how, how, how does that work in terms of slotting people in so that it's still TSG? I, I try not to tell a coach who is successful uh, how to program, uh, how to coach. Um, and 
all training is, is it's preparation for competition. And uh, PSG is more about the core values of, of integrity and innovating, and taking pride in your work and uh, caring about the clients than it is about uh, X's and O's on, on an Excel sheet. Um, so coaches have free reign to coach uh, in the way that is effective, so long as it's effective so long as the results are up to standard uh, with everyone else in the organization. Um, and I, I think that actually not trying to homogenize our coaching staff to we are only going to do BUP, uh, a volume-based approach to training over time and systematically progress that, I think that uh, really improves us. So, I mean, we, Vanessa Gale on our staff is, is very well-versed in uh, how reactive training systems coaches, how emerging strategies work. Uh, and she's, she's thankfully brought that insight and that knowledge into our team. And I, I think that's something that's given us a lot of creativity. I haven't changed the way I coach, but I've changed parts of it uh, during variable situations where I think that her approach may be advantageous. And through talking to her, she said the same about my DUP volume-based approach to training. So uh, I think it's very important not to homogenize everyone on a, on a team. Everyone has their strong points and everyone also has their weak areas. Uh, and so long as the end result is good, um, I, I'd actually like to learn from you rather than say you have to do things my way. Yeah, that actually sounds like the best way to go about it. Even within us, I mean, I'm the, the new coach of the group and going into like the intern meetings and the coaching meetings like that, hearing the differences, even though we might come from the same lineage and may have the same idea on periodization. For example, some of the difference I noticed is that like Jason Alfred put more SPD training sessions than I do. I almost like never do an SPD training session. Also in general, like I tend to have a little bit more variations where Jason might do like, you know, more competition specific put more volume into the competition list. We're also maybe have some more accessory work. So a few differences here and there, but like, like, like Jason said, there's more than one way to, you know, program and get someone to be successful. And so if you're making small adjustments here and there, but getting to the same end goal, then, um, then it's okay. And some of the, the more, I guess, like, um, uh, more like detailed things or more like, um, things that are same across everyone is that Jason's like very, important as far as the athlete management system everyone has to you know be filling it out correctly the presentation has to be correctly delivering all the programs on time responding to your athletes everything like that um, as far as the branding then is the same and the communication and like you know the services you're providing are, are what's advertised rather than the specific numbers on the page yeah people i can't so i can't get to you this week type deal or uh yeah having that kind of communication and also how important is it to have like, first off, it's interesting. You guys have the coaching meetings. What do you guys discuss when you all collectively, do you guys all just hop on a zoom call and discuss what your clients are working with? And then sometimes you get ideas from other people or someone's hit a plateau. You kind of, cause I'm just picturing, you know, from a normal work, we have uh, zoom calls and discuss our normal work days and collaborate on issues, et cetera. Is that how it looks like in the background of TSG? Yeah, once or, once or twice a week during normal times during this NHL season, it's been a little bit more infrequent because of, uh, I mean, we're playing, we played 56 games in like 12 weeks. So it's uh, it's a high volume of games. I don't have a lot of free time these days, but 
um, during normal times, uh, two times a week at least, we'll sit down with our interns and uh, some calls will do programming, some calls will do video analysis, some, some calls will make them present to us some programming based on uh, case studies. Uh, and sometimes we'll just discuss things uh, or, or even debate or create something that's new. Um, we have, we have an like a small army of people uh, working on uh, integrating artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, into creating a scouting report for, for, um, for competitions in the future so that we can predict, um, we can predict your reliability as a competitor and uh, predict what you're likely to total, uh, when you may miss attempts, when you may uh, make attempts, uh, just to give us a little bit of an information advantage as well. So uh, we have calls where we're talking about sports science and, and kind of the future of coaching. Um, I think that's something that it allows us to pass on that like innovative spirit and like we aren't where we can be to our interns. And it also keeps it at the forefront of our minds, these meetings as well. It's um, in terms of like your busy schedule, the Calgary Flames um, playoffs are coming up. So your, your uh, workload will lighten up there. Um, yeah. Damn. <laughs> you'll be more available. Yeah. <laughs> We're from Toronto, by the way. Uh, I was going <laughs> to add in there that um, some of the meetings are other uh, go beyond just like coaching. A lot of people, again, just see it from one aspect. Like, oh, you're just talking about programming and how to make programming better. But also, you know, the coaches meeting, I mean, all, it's really a company meeting because all the coach, all the coaches are part of the company. So the company meeting, you might be talking about other things as far as like different projects you're working on. Like Jason said, the scouting report, different projects as far as like uh, what's going on with nationals, like who can come, who, who's going to be handling who, what teams to enter. It can be things of like, you know, marketing and advertising the business and like, you know, price increases or how to do things like that. So it's an actual business. It's all the other yeah. stuff to involve with the business, not just the programming part, the numbers on a piece of paper, as far as the coaching. It's a, it's a legit sports organization. Like Jason's vision was where it's like, look at this is a, cause I'm, I would assume you've been on meetings um, with these, with an actual team pro sports. So it kind of helps you devise like, look, these are conversations we need to have to get on the same page here. Yeah. yeah I, I know how it works. So uh, I'm definitely, I'm trying to bring the best parts of that to PSG as well. Uh, in terms of some of these, these, um, like, I remember when you went on with the Calgary Flames and you were telling me some like the testing you had devised and it went out, like, what are some of these systems you have, you have created um, for testing athletes, for gauging athletes, both in like sports in general, in powerlifting, some of the background stuff. I'll, I'll allow you to nerd out a little bit, but you might lose me, sir. So maybe Arian's got to ask follow-up questions or Alfred. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it all started with um, they needed to hire someone to uh, develop reports based on the NHL scouting combine, uh, where the players, the players that are entered into the NHL draft for that year are put through a battery of physical examinations by strength and conditioning coaches from around the league. And it's, it's standardized. You got your, your VO2 max and your peak power evaluations and body fat, agility. Like we just want to measure these things and, and see how you rank uh, against everyone else, against previous prospects uh, to, to get an understanding of, of who the organization is going to draft, right? What kind of physical athlete is this? Uh, because 
hockey is not all physical. Uh, you could be the best athlete, the most, the most athletic specimen that the world has ever seen, but you can still lose, you know, 82 games in an NHL season if you're no good at hockey, right? And if your team is no good. So the physical element of hockey is only one component. It's a very important component. You got to know about their aerobic and, and anaerobic uh, performance um, and, and where you need to train them, where they need to improve. Uh, so it started actually on the, the flight to 2019 Worlds. Alfred was right next to me. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll, uh, I'll make the, the NHL draft scouting reports for this, for this year, for this draft. And so I, I spent uh, 10 to 12 hours, basically the entire flight to Toronto and then to Copenhagen or to London and then uh, to Copenhagen, sorry, um, doing and redoing these things. And every time I thought I was done, uh, one of my mentors, the head strength and conditioning coach of Calgary Flames, Ryan Van Asten, he's a two-time Stanley Cup champion as well uh, from the Los Angeles Kings organization. He'd say, no, this is fucked up or, or this needs to change. And it was the smallest detail, but he was right. You know, like one typo, one extra space, uh, maybe the color of gray is a little bit off. But when you're looking at uh, winning championships, I think that the what Ryan does a great job of is he's saying this is the level of attention to detail that you need as an organization if you want to do your best uh, and put the best possible result. Because I believe that uh, it's not just coaching that puts out a winning lifter or a losing lifter. It's, it's our organization behind them. So it's either the quality of our organization is going to produce winning as a culture or it's going to produce losing as a culture. And so that means that we've got to do things the right way as a team holistically. And so I, I try to hold my staff to the standard. And, uh, that's one of the things I've, I've been fortunate to learn uh, during my time with the Calgary Flames. Um, so after I got the, the NHL draft uh, scouting reports done, um, I built in Excel a document where they could house all uh, injury, um, all jump testing, all GPS units. So players wear GPS units in their shoulder pads in practice. Uh, you can track things like the amount of force they're putting to their left or right leg uh, per stride on ice even. It's quite incredible uh, what you can monitor. Uh, I, I made an Excel document where they could store all of their data uh, throughout the season, throughout the off season, uh, so that they can see what's going on uh, with their players, so that they could identify the trends. Uh, when, is, when is power for a player trending down versus when is it trending up? Um, is a player developing any, uh, any imbalances or, or asymmetries, as we call them, that may correlate with a, a higher risk of injury. Um, and then also to analyze their program data. So this is my third project. I analyzed all of their training and I, I presented a report to them saying, these are your workloads, uh, not only in, in, in weightlifting, but also in, in sprinting, agility, stuff like this, plyometrics. Uh, this is where you can probably improve for next off season. Uh, and so that was my uh, third project for them. Um, and along the way, it's, it's been a lot of uh, me also getting to 
pop in on the coaching sessions and actually work with the players, uh, learn how to communicate with athletes after uh, a great win, after a, a you know a defeating loss. Um, the whole mantra of, of being even keel as a coach, you know, never get too high, never never get too low. You're their you're their stable figure, and so you've got to you've got to manage that. Um, I've gotten to see uh, how two different head coaches in the NHL function. So uh, Jeff Ward, is, uh, he's won a Stanley Cup in uh, Boston, I believe, in 2011 as an assistant head coach of the Boston Bruins. Um, but he's, he's kind of, I'd say, a newer school uh, coach compared to uh, Daryl Sutter, who the Sutter brothers are, are hockey royalty in, in the entire NHL, but especially in Alberta. Uh, seven of them, six of them went on to play, play in the NHL. Uh, the seventh brothers, apparently the best hockey player, uh, stayed home on the farm in Viking, Alberta to, to manage the, to manage the Sutter, Sutter Ranch. Um, but Daryl Sutter is one of the, the legendary head coaches of the game. And so uh, this season we had a coaching change and I got to see the, the difference between how Jeff Ward ran things versus how Daryl Sutter runs things. And uh, man, there's there's so much knowledge to be gained just by being in the same in the same locker room as all of that that's happening. Uh, it's insane. Yeah, my, my time with the Calgary Flames has been an amazing experience. I've I've learned heaps and downs, and uh, it's going to fuel innovations and uh, improvement within TSG for years to come. It's insane hearing. Like you talk about the names and the people you worked with, like um, for anyone who like follows hockey. Yeah, this is crazy. Uh, <laughs> but even I remember when you were doing some of this and you were showing me um, some of the some of the data you had pulled about like, you know, the force output and then the carryover for distance and how long they can maintain. And, it, and I was like, Doug, I'm not sure I'm following you after a while. You have like so much data in the Excel. You know, it's really interesting, right? Because I noticed with this athlete and I'm like, holy shit, Jason, he behind the scenes, you, you get off on this kind of data crunching. Um, in terms of like bringing this over into powerlifting, do you like have you is this basically like, have you developed these kind of systems in the background to test athletes and is this how you guys all of you you know you could all pitch in here too not just jason but how you devise a program you know what's the best way when an athlete jumps in with you and you're starting from the jump you don't know a heck of a lot about them how do you start developing a program for an athlete who maybe we'll get alfred then arian and then jason because we haven't heard alfred in a minute so usually what happens when I bring on a new athlete is I get to know them a little bit more, get to hear about their training past a little bit more. I'll ask questions like, uh, you know, what, what, let me, let me see a current program. Like, what's that like? What's your current frequency? Like that way I get an idea of, uh, you know, and if they're making, if they're successful at it, if they're making gains squatting three times a week, that kind of gives me a blueprint of where to start. You know, if they're making success at three times a week, probably not going to start them squatting one times a week uh, or inverse. If they're doing twice a week and they're not making progress, I'll try to see what kind of volume they're working with. Are they working with a lot of volume or maybe just singles and doubles? Can they use a little bit more rep work and whatnot? So it, I, there is some, a, a little bit of research uh, prior to writing their initial program. Uh, I try my best to match it or come close to what they were previously doing as long as they're still making progress. 
Uh, I don't want to make it too big of a jump or too far off the left field from what they're previously doing. Yeah, and then I guess you start tweaking from there. Yeah, so once they kind of get the ball rolling, then we kind of make some small adjustments and we'll do a course of evaluations. You know, after five weeks, we'll do maybe an AMRAP test just to see how they respond. If they made progress, then we know that this is a good place to start. If nothing has really happened, then we can kind of look back and see where are some areas where we can improve on more, you know, accessories, volume, intensity, et cetera. And how do you feel about AMRAPs? Because I noticed, um, I mean, not maybe not all strength guys, athletes, but I've noticed the AMRAPs. There's a time and place to do it. Uh, I don't program it all the time. Uh, if I feel that after X amount of uh, weeks or blocks that they've done and they've shown some kind of progress uh, or maybe the perceived RPE for a certain intensity is getting a little bit lower, then it might be a good idea to do an AMRAP test just to see where the strength level is at. Uh, but it's not something that we throw in like every four weeks, so it's supposed to be. Gotcha. Like when you mean an AMRAP, t- <clears throat> excuse me, an AMRAP test, like if you've been prescribing an RP eight um, with so many uh, like like squats for like sets of four, and you're like, you know what? I noticed the weight you've been using for your sets of four RP eight roughly range. Do you tell them do that weight again, and I want you to AMRAP it? Just to see if this is still an eight, is that, am I following you with that line of thinking? Jason, you sound like you're going to jump in here. Yeah. So if you're working at uh, RP8 for sets of four, this is roughly 85% of your one RM. So based on the standard RM uh, to percent one rep max relationship, uh, your six rep max is going to fall within the neighborhood of uh, 85%. And so we cap you at uh, six reps, which would be an RP10, right? Uh, but there's a cap because some people can go deep down within and do 20 reps on this set. And that's not good. That's That doesn't tell us about your strength gain either. It just tells us that you're a mental warrior. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, six reps and then rate your RP. Like tell us how many more reps you think you could have done if you hit six reps. Uh, and from that, we could deduce, you know, have, have you likely improved your one around by two and a half, five, seven and a half or, or 10 kilos based on how easy the set is and also how training went uh, going up to it. So that's how we use AMRAPs. Uh, in the same token, um, if you don't do great on an AMRAP and um, AMRAPs are just an assessment to show us where you are, right? It, it's not like, I think there's a, a trend in, in powerlifting where everything is, every week of training is viewed as a, a mini meet, a data point that's going to magically transfer to the competition. Uh, I was talking to Ben Esgro about this yesterday, and we believe that training is just preparation for competition. It's not, it's not, training is not competitions week after week. That's in my opinion, that's kind of nonsense. It doesn't transfer over as well. And I, I think people who uh, train that way sometimes can overvalue uh, what's happening in training and uh, what happens in competition can be different, right? And so that's a, a shortcoming of, of that type of approach. Uh, whereas we're just trying to decide uh, what you may be able to do in competition but we're saving the best for last. Mm-hmm. I'd say that's a, a big difference in, in, in the approach of TSG versus many others. Um, 
But yeah, like AMRAPs can also be a come down to earth. So let's say you only do two reps uh, with your work sets that were four. Uh, now we're going to have to decrease, you know, we're going to have to decrease your one RM and we're going to have to communicate with you honestly that, uh, you know, uh, maybe you lost some body weight or, or you had some recent life events or maybe training just plain hasn't been going well for whatever reason. Um, you're not where you thought you were. And that's unfortunate, but we have to accept it and move on from where we are currently. Uh, and I think that could be equally valuable and it could be redeeming on meet day. Uh, if you're honest with yourself and with the lifter in the lead up to the meet that, hey, I had big ambitions for this competition, but I mean, we're not there. It's better if we show up on meet day and make eight or nine out of nine attempts and maximize our total for what we can do compared to going three or four out of nine and bombing because we're not as strong as we were maybe when we were, you know, three kilos heavier than we are at competition weight. It's, it's chasing that bad money when you get attached to romantically attached to certain numbers and you're like, your heart is set and you're like, yeah, but that's not what the training is indicating. And they just like, I know it'll be there meet day. It's like, well, <laughs> all science isn't pointing to that though. But so that's the difficult line, right? Because athletes believe in themselves. Yeah. Well, how, how about yourself, Arian, in terms of devising these programmings? Yeah, I mean, as far as when someone new comes in, I try and get as much information as I can from them. It's like, hey, send me your old training, especially anything recent. Send me any uh, training footage you have, especially like, you know, competition or anything recent and try and build off of that. So I kind of say it as like, it's evolution, not revolution. It's like, okay, let's see what they were doing. What are some possible issues with what they were doing? We can make some small tweaks to make an improvement. Some people, maybe it's like a very small tweak, like, okay, maybe you shouldn't have hit your openers, like, you know, two days out from the meet. And then, you know, that messed up your meet day, or maybe you shouldn't have dropped off like all your volume, you know, four or six weeks out from a competition. Um, for some people, it could be like maybe a little bit more of a change if they were doing a different type of programming. And I feel like maybe like they weren't able to get as much frequency that way or as much volume that way. Okay. We can slowly build this up over time, you know, go from one time a squat to two times a squat a week, or maybe increase the volume to a new peak. So that's what I've been doing. And, and more recently, I've been trying to do more video calls other than just them submitting the form and, and then submitting the training is on the video calls. And you can ask more questions about like the training and not just like, you know, see the sheet. Cause a lot of people don't put in the sheet, what they actually did, if they made any changes along the way and just, you know, getting them to learn more of their personality and tell them like, okay, this is what the plan is going to be. And these are what the expectations are going to be similar to what Jason said. I, I might track an estimated one RM every single week, but I'm not looking for it to go up every single week. And so some of my lifters will sometimes see that on my, on my tab when I use, when I use my own personal Google sheets is they'll see their estimated max going down and they get worried. I like, Oh, am I getting weaker? And it's like, no, like, if, you know, if we're far out from meat, we're doing a, a prep phase and you're doing, you know, sets of six or sets of eight, maybe even sets of 10 on, on accessory work is you may be inducing a lot of fatigue and you're going to be, you know, not, not in your best shape when you're going to do that test set or whatever you're using compared to in a competition where you hopefully have no fatigue. And so as you're getting more fatigued during a, a volume phase or a prep phase or like that, your estimated one rep max may go down a little bit. But again, as Jason said, our goal is not to test where you're at during those weeks or to, you know, say, okay, our estimated one rep is here. We're going to do this in the competition is we're, we're doing the work now to set up for later. And based on the science and experience and everything like that, we know it's going to work later. Yeah, that's the thing that people get it fall in love with is when you're in training and you hit like a triple and they want to break out that calculator and be like, 
that means based off this triple on meet day, it's like my friend, this triple is you were in the middle of like tons of volume or whatever the hell else we're throwing at you. Like how you feel in the middle of a work week in the middle of it is going to be totally different after you've like had a couple days off and deloaded or whatever and tapered and gone into a competition. Like it'll be totally different. Like you sometimes breaking out those calculators doesn't necessarily work. Like there's times when you want to test it, but some people like constantly the numbers have to keep going up like throughout the last month, throughout the last six weeks. And if they're not trending up all the time, something's wrong and they're about to have a mental breakdown. And they're like, I think I got to switch coaches. Something's wrong. It's like, be easy. You know, that's not how the body responds. It wasn't, it's just not that easy. Yeah. Like I, I just saw a question on, on Reddit either today or yesterday. I was looking at, it. I always roam the uh, powerlifting subreddit and see the questions on there. And it comes up often as like the person just did a competition. They hit whatever number four Oh five on deadlift. And then after the competition, they start a new program and they're like, am I supposed to be weaker? Like, you know, 375 feels hard. And it's well, first of all, you probably shouldn't go that close to your max right after the competition. And, and second, it's like, uh, they, that means they don't understand the whole concept of periodization and getting ready for a competition. Cause the whole point is for you to be the best possibly you can on that competition day. Or if you're in a season, you know, for your actual game days and playoffs and everything like that, you want to be on point for those days. It doesn't really matter where you are the other days. And so if you did peak yourself properly and you were the best you could possibly be on that competition day, then yes, the few days after or the week after you may still like feel beat up. Your numbers may not be as high. Your skill may be down if you took a number of days off. And that's why you have to then come back and rebuild yourself for the new peak for the new competition. So this person was like freaking out that they lost their strength after the meet day. It's also why we call it a peak, right? You're, you're <laughs> literally at peak performance at one specific period of time. It's not realistic to expect you your strength levels to be maintaining that all year long. It doesn't quite happen that way. It's one point in time. And that's where programming comes into play is we want to make sure that they are the best on that one period of time. Yeah. I, um, I read, uh, cause this, this isn't just for strength. This is for, um, and I know Jason works with a bunch of different athletes, so he knows, but um, I read like Usain Bolt's autobiography and Michael Johnson, who's like a track star as well in the nineties. Um, and they talk about like, they would have, they'd be on tour and they would have a bunch of different races, but if there's, if the world championships was rolling up or if it was an Olympic year, they would show up at certain races and the promoters have like major sponsors, millions of dollars. You're saying Bolt, but in terms of an athlete in certain sports, this is a sport that worldwide, everybody knows track. You know, it doesn't matter if you go in Asia, Africa, Europe, name the continent. You probably know Usain Bolt, world's fastest man, et cetera. So when he shows up, and all these people show up, they're like, the promoter's like, what are we looking at here? You know, or, or uh, you know, how fast are we thinking? World record, maybe? Are we thinking? And he's saying, Bolt's like, my friend, in terms of peaking, I am sub 10 seconds, like three days of the year, man. Like this isn't, you know, I get it. I'm saying Bolt. So you have expectations, but that is not how the body works. And he'll even like sometimes tell us, you know, it's difficult. These guys face the same um, obstacles, but it's, it just shows you how the body works where they're like, I'm telling my manager, if you book me for certain events, you got to talk to them ahead of time, you know, because it's not going to be my Olympic performance 20 times a year consistently, just like, you know, just like a Taylor Atwood doesn't walk into the gym and can any given day on an SBD day total over 800, you know, that's going to happen once or twice a year. Same with like all athletes though. This is everybody that has to face this. And some people, you know, it's, it's tough to accept that, 
I mean, it almost never goes away. It's almost half the part of a coach. That's why people who coach themselves, it's, um, I, I understand where Alfred was saying, where he's like, I mean, I almost had to, I had to give someone else the wheel because it's hard to be your own counsel as well as the person in it to be, you know, it, it almost needs to, because it's hard to not be emotionally attached when it's yourself and to tell yourself everything's okay. Some people can do it, but that's really difficult. Um, do you guys find, like, I want to also ask you about uh, scouting. In terms of, like, scouting, Jason, you briefly touched up on, like, you learned a lot about scouting reports and actually crunching data of, um, in terms of scouting, like, when they were scouting to drafting, but then you carried over crunching data on what to expect from opposition in major competitions and how there is telltale science. There's patterns. People have patterns. Just like you see patterns when I throw this volume at you, I anticipate your later on your strength will be this on meet day. People have patterns in competitions. People have patterns if they miss their third squat, the chances are going to miss their third dead, et cetera. And you could notify these patterns. Um, tell me a little bit about this. Yeah. So, uh, I'd say like the NHL experience is a lot more indirect. I think most valuable has been my mentorship under Matt and Susie Gary, um, who took me under under their wing and in Clean Texas and at the Worlds that followed uh, when I was there with with Taylor Atwood and um, taught me a lot about the ins and outs of game day coaching. And and honestly, I, I found Matt and Susie to be uh, role models of they are doing this the right way. Like they know how competitors train. They know how coaches select attempts. They know what your numbers are. They know when you're bluffing. They know the rules. Like it's just, it feels legitimate, right? Like it's like you see it and you're like, that's how coaching should be. Uh, and so I, I saw that early on in my career and I, I wanted to, to, to get myself to that standard. Um, so that's my goal. Um, now, like I'd say the, the main questions that I want to know are uh, how does this competitor train? Uh, do they have a history of delivering uh, their results on the platform that they show in training? Because so many people show their training online which I think is a little bit of a mistake. Um, honestly, like whenever you see Taylor post, usually it's just like eighth work set. It's not a top set. <laughs> He's mm. already been doing it for 45 minutes and then he's showing you, you know, like we're not showing you our package. You got to wait to see that on the, on the two days of the year where we're competing, you know? I think that's a big advantage. And when you show your, when you show your hand too early, uh, people can strategize against you. Uh, and that could work against you at some point in time in the future. So again, it, it depends how many of your cards you want to show. But um, yeah, we want to see how this person peaks. Uh, how do they train? I have certain thoughts and beliefs about different training styles, how well they peak, how inefficiently they peak. Um, so who are you coached by? Um, how does the coach select attempts? Like, is the coach, uh, you know, like, is the coach going to open you up like an Olympic weightlifter really close to your 1RM and then try to make small jumps from there? Uh, or is the coach going to try to PR you on your second and, and then make a jump from there? Or is the coach someone like who's very, you know, we're going to 
try to fill up as close to 100 as possible without going over. Uh, Matt Gary-esque and like going nine for nine and building the total. Because uh, information like that is, is really important when you're, when you're in the heat of the moment and you're trying to decide on squat or on bench press what kind of lead you need or how close you've got to be on subtotal heading in the deadlift to go for the win. So this is really important scouting information, uh, percentage of attempts that you convert versus what you don't, uh, average rate of improvement, um, how young you are, how you train, and putting this into action, uh, we have we have some tricks on our team that I'm not going to discuss. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> that's totally fair. And I know you guys got tricks. It is. Um, I mean, there's a huge difference, and I think still to this day, the biggest underrated th- skill set is handling and and game day coaching. And some people have no freaking idea because I put a poll. Um, is game day coaching overrated? And the poll said overrated. Now, not most people only ever do two competitions and never go forward. So they're at the local level where game day handling is just, what is it? What do you feel like? Now, five kilo, okay, we'll put five kilo on. And you're not looking at, you're just looking at PR and you're not looking at anybody else or whatever. It's very easy. So I kind of get that actually. But also I hear people talk about certain coaches like this guy, you know, he's the handler, you know, the game day and uh, this this girl, you know, her game day approach. But then you look at their game day approach and it's like, I don't see that though. I don't know what you think you're seeing. You know, you there, <laughs> there's, um, I think game actual game day coaches know who's who and who are the sharks and and who are the tunas <laughs> and um and some people are tunas and some people got teeth in their sharks and they will adjust on that day and if you don't come correct they're going to capitalize on you so if you're going out there thinking here's what i want for my third um you know end off with a pr and just kind of looking at it that way it's like well you're not entirely looking around you though at the same time and um, PRing is one thing, but winning is another. And putting yourself in position where by the time deads come around, some people have the game sewed up by the second dead. It's like, ah, oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, shit. Right. Um, we made it. So we were ahead and we made it. So we were deading after you. So you dead first. And by the second, now you're really behind the eight ball and you got to go all in on your third. But oh, guess what? We get to go after you. So if you miss, well, we had a one on our second. If somehow you hit, we get to go last to take it from you. Like if you're not paying, if you're not paying close enough attention and realizing all the moving pieces and there's people that can come up from behind you while you're chasing gold, you're not defending silver or you're not paying attention. And that's how you get bumped right off of a podium. These things happen where when you actually know how to pay attention. And the reason why it's easier is when you go into it, you're like, I'm going to be looking at this person coming up from fourth. I already know come deads, this is where they might be. And I'm ready. When you're trying to take in too much data all at once and you have 60 seconds to make a call, it's very difficult. I'm not saying you got to go in there knowing everybody's background, but when you go in there with at least you have an eye, it's in the back of your mind, you know, like, all right, I remember Lane Norton just on the last podcast. It's funny you're talking about Matt Gary, who's legendary with his handling. And I love Matt Gary. Um, he was, Lane Norton said, when I was going into the world championships, I got an email from Matt Gary 
And it was like 20 pages long, scouting the world saying, listen to me, if you are perfect and you go nine for nine, I got you pegged on a silver, but this is what you're going to need. And he's talking about like a full scouting report. Lane's like, who the shit, what is going on here? But Matt just, you know, this is Matt Gary loves powerlifting and he'll do this. Like he wasn't Matt Gary's client or nothing, but this is what Matt does. And he's like, I just, I pulled all the numbers and you got to go nine for nine. You got to finish here. And they did exactly that. Nine for nine took silver, broke, broke world records, et cetera. But yeah, it, it's, it's big. And I feel like people, um, we naturally project our own life experiences on everything. And most people will never be at us raw Nats, European championships or world championships where it's thick. And the difference between a and B and C can be five to 10 kilo. And if it's that, you know, it'll come down to handling. As a matter of fact, you have people who are weaker and they still beat out somebody who's stronger than them due to handling. We've seen this. I don't want to drop names, but We've all seen people who are not as good on the game day, on the big days, but absolutely when you can go nine for nine and there's no actual game day strategy needed at a local meet, they'll crush at a local meet. But when it comes to like the big showdowns, it's a different ball game. And there's a lot of things that go into it. Even then, I would say to the people who don't value it as much as it should be valued uh, at a local meet, like the example, like you just said, I, I had a client at Alberta Provincials uh, in September who was projected to, to come in fourth at the start of the day. But the guy who was battling for, for first or second, he was there for, he was there for all, the, all the marbles, starts missing a lot of lips. And I was like, whoa, like, you know, we're, we're really far behind him on our, on our forecast to total right now. Uh, but shit like we're catching up every lift we make and, and sure enough final pull we beat them on body weight for for bronze you know like so stuff like that it enhances our enjoyment of the day a lot because we got something that you know on strength alone maybe our strength didn't merit it but our performance did and powerlifting is performance it's not just strength um, and then I, I'd say on the coaching side of things, coaches should take local meets very seriously because it's a chance to develop your skills as well. Um, very rarely are there so many meets in powerlifting that coaches have the opportunity to, you know, practice every week, practice their craft of calling numbers and, and, and managing the strategy of a meet. So I take these opportunities very seriously myself. And I, I know from what I've seen uh, when Alfred and I are local meets, he does as well. Uh, Cause this is also our, uh, our time to practice and get better ourselves. I am, yeah. um, uh, sorry, you're going to say more. Well, I was just going to add to that, that the, the strategy part or like, you know, picking a tense based on a competitor is only one aspect of the game day coaching. So like people are saying like, you know, game day coaching is overrated it's still important for local meets. And like when I do game day coaching for someone who's not even my athlete and they're, they're paying me just for that game day, I like to even include the time leading up. So I tell them like, Hey, send me your heavy lifts leading into the competition. If not going to post them, because I want to pick the numbers on the meet based on what you've been doing and training, how it's looking. Same thing with like body weight. Are you cutting weight? Are you doing a water cut? What do you weigh in at? Did you like overshoot it? Those kinds of things. And even if you take all that out, the game day coaching still is like, 
warming up. Some people warm up too much. They're doing sets of 10 on like, you know, the empty bar, 65 kilos, 105 kilos, or doing jumps like they're used to in the, in the gym. Oh, 145 pound plate, 245 pound plates, 345 pound plates. And just like following, you know, just the, the lazy method of warming up or maybe, you know, timing it wrong. Like sometimes you see, um, they say, oh, okay, bars loaded for Jason. And I look over in the warm-up room and like Jason's still doing his last warm-up over there. Like he's not ready in time. So all those things come into the game day coaching has nothing to do with your competitor that sets you up to put the best performance possible with what Jason's saying. And you, you've, it's probably happened. You may not see it, but it's probably happened where someone had such a bad experience. Maybe they missed all their thirds or maybe they bombed out or something like that, or, you know, they didn't have the proper socks or something like that. They had, just had a terrible experience that I meet. And it led to them just never competing again and leaving. And had they had someone that knew what they were doing or like, you know, hired someone specifically for that day and had a positive day, then they maybe set them up where they would come back, you know, go in the next training cycle with these new numbers and continue to stick with it. 100%. Um, I, uh, one game day. So Caffey, who's, who's also in King of the Lifts, uh, when he won the Canadian Nationals, this is me and him were dissecting the field, right? And we knew... Uh, the guy that was is the number one competitor we were going against. This is this is one of these storylines where game day can win you the day. So Kafwe had totaled more, but one ended up winning with a smaller total than his overall PR. Um, going into this, we knew the opposition, the chief opposition, and his name escapes me, um, was he was a subtotal guy. He had the Canadian record for squat and um, was probably going to attempt it again. His bench press was bigger than Kafwe's, but Kafwe had that big the ipf world record deadlift um that you know the record got taken for but a monster deadlift nonetheless and everybody already knew that so we decided leading in only show fast heavy deadlifts but not the top end anything that gets a little slower you pull it back and don't post that and everybody knows you got this big intimidating deadlifts so walking into it um and this is not strategy i know this is strategy you guys probably have heard and used as well but make select your opener for dead that you have in as a placeholder because you're allowed to change um, ahead of time. It's not your actual opener. It's not quite your second. Slightly below what your second weight was, it's believable opener, but it's big. It's fucking intimidating. Where people think if you're starting there, my God, where's it going to end up? And the barometer of where your dead is it's hard to gauge off your training, as Jason was saying. Don't show all your cards because everything you were smoking so fast. So it feels like if you're smoking seven, what are we talking? Seven fifty? What? What? what where, where's the top end? He's an IPF world record breaker in terms of deads. What are we talking about here? He doesn't know. So then it puts the pressure on the subtotal guy. If he's looking to build his total three for three in squats, three for three in bench, he really needs because he's looking at, oh my God, by the time we get to debts. And I told Kathy, your key right now is go three for three and collect a six for six walking into deads. And then they look at that big, huge dead opener and they're thinking, oh my God, the total is going to be monster. And they have to catch up, even though you haven't even pulled it yet. They have that number's in their head and they're looking at the forecast every single time you go three for three in squats three for three in bench. Now the forecast is building based off of that freaking dead opener. That's not even real. And they're Actually, looking at that. Sorry, go ahead. Something similar oh, in, uh, wait, wait one second. Let, let me, let me, let, hang on one second. Let me finish this bad boy. Okay. So my man that they were going against, he thinks he's catching up on a number that he doesn't really have to catch up on. It's a bit of a bluff. 
So he misses his third squat because he thinks he needs that chip. And he does because Caffrey's going to grab a chip in the deadlifts. So do you chip on your second squat? Well, the spread isn't big enough. So he's going to chip on his third, but he not only is going to chip on his third, he needs to build on his third towards his total. So it's that conundrum. Now you got a chip. Anyone listening? That's a half kilo. You go up half kilo. You force us to go up two and a half kilos. So you got a chip, but you also need to build towards your total. So you're risking it. Misses his third squat, doesn't go towards his total. This is the chip. Now we're on to bench press. Now he's got to cover ground because Caffey went three for three and he's in the pocket. And Caffey goes three for three on bench. We're just chilling in the pocket. And he, the pressure's really on once you miss your squat. And now you're looking at this huge dead incoming. Misses his third bench because the pressure's so badly on. Caffey lowers his deadlift opener to something far more comfortable because now he's six for six. Nails his dead opener, but his dead is opener still over the other gentleman's dead opener. So he's still deading second. Gets to see every dead attempt he's going to put in first. By the second attempt deads, the competition was already over. Caffey sees him coming, gets to collect his chip on top of that. So he's got to go two and a half kilo up and Caffey sees you coming. And now the guy is all in like, holy shit, how did this day unfold on me like this? And Calf, we ended up, his third dead was a throwaway deadlift. We, he literally just went, the battle was already won. So they went like, I forget, there was like a- That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, chirped him. I said he never worked hard on his final deadlift. <laughs> it, was, it was a crazy like four-time body weight. Yeah. It was- it was something silly on the deadlift because he, he threw away his left deadlift on a crazy number because he could, because the battle was already, and his total was, he had less than a PR total. I don't even know if he hit any PRs, but he didn't need to is the point. It, people like, well, I PR'd and I blah, blah, I'm going for a P, my plan is to, that's cool. But when you get on the national level, world level, it's not that though. There is gamesmanship. If you don't know this, you're not paying attention, you know, and you're, you're not, it's, and that's where people lose, lose or win without even putting together the PR day. Imagine like an NFL quarterback saying, I'm going PR on touchdowns at, at this game. Right. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's true though. It's like, no, come up with a game plan. And sometimes that game plan will work. Sometimes it wouldn't, depending on who you're going against. And you know, they're going to go for a chip on bench or they're going to go for a chip on squat or they need to. But if we make it so they actually have to extend to try to get that chip as well at the same time, like if you just nudge the national record for the chip, but you don't extend to build towards your total, well, fine, go ahead, take the record and the chip, but you're not putting nearly enough towards your total because you see the dead that's coming down the pipeline. So choose your poison, my friend. So now they're making tough decisions. These are decisions that you're putting in their head and they don't fucking know. They're like, I, I'm not sure. I'm making tough decisions here. What? It's the worst is for a coach to be like, do you care more about a, a record on an individual event or do you want to win? And then if it's win, okay, we're going to grab a chip as well as even more so because I think you need more so looking ahead and you know, it's tough, man. It's tough decisions that people don't fully grasp. And um, I I've seen your guys scouting reports and I I've seen Matt Gary's and some other people scouting reports. And if you're just walking in there somewhat winging it, being intuitive, it can be tough if you don't know what you're going against, or you could be like, if you were in the other guy's shoes, you could be like, they're like, Oh my God, what does this mean? Relax. He doesn't have the dead. He's pretending he does. That's a bluff relax you know like we've seen this 
He's done this before. We know we around his capabilities are maybe his dad jumped up 50 kilo, you know, maybe, but probably not. So relax. Maybe if he actually has that dad that he's bluffing, God bless. We, we're not going to win anyways, but we're going to pretend it isn't because that doesn't look appropriate to me. That looks like a bluff to me. You know, it's, but if you know, when you've done your homework, you can kind of see these things coming. Yeah, that's, that's why you've got to be prepared. I, I remember Alfred uh, with Ben Langley versus Connor Lutz um, at 2020 Canadian Nationals, uh, back when the world was still a normal place. Uh, <laughs> like a week uh, before it was normal. Yeah, literally a week. That's the same Nationals <laughs> as Caffrey, by the way. Uh, so, like, Ben Langley uh, had hit a big PR, like a 40-kilo 40 40 total PR, uh, but he went up a weight class. He went up to the 83 to do that. And I, I don't think that Connor was anticipating that Ben Langley was going to be able to replicate that performance 74 kilo lifter. Uh, so in my opinion, uh, Connor left some kilos on the table on squat and bench. Meanwhile, uh, Alfred's coaching Ben. I'm, I'm, I'm literally just standing there running numbers throughout the meet, uh, letting, letting Alfred know what I think. Ben was a little, little bit on shaky ground um, on squat. Like, I think he came out a little bit overconfident. I could see it in his mojo, and fuck, his opener was tough. <laughs> oh, he and grinded Alfred, the piss out of his opener. That scared me. Yeah, Alfred uh, had the cojones to, like, go RP 10 on his third attempt squat. Still went up 12 and a half kilos over the second and third, and, and he makes it this grind of his life. Uh, and same thing on bench. And meanwhile, I, Connor was still leaving a little bit in the tank on bench. And then Alfred had a genius move uh, based on scouting Connor. Uh, uh, he was going to put in one of Ben's old openers. So it was, it was 10 kilos under our plant opener. And I'm standing there at the table getting ready to submit this right at the deadline. And uh, Bryce Krawcheck, who was handling Connor, was also standing there. So we have our sheets of paper in. Right? <laughs> it's like, this is a card game. I want to see yeah, yeah. It's like Dutch flicks or something. And then you're like, boom, boom, like put it down. Uh, so we put our attempts down on the table because we wanted to open up after Connor on deadlift. Uh, we wanted to see what he was going to submit for his second attempt so that we could be in the driver's seat going into thirds, just based on second attempts alone. Um, and, and luckily the, the carts that got put down, boom, boom, at the last possible second, uh, they fell in our favor and we got to open up, uh, just after, uh, and then Ben was able to, uh, secure the win on, on second. So that was another example of, uh, really genius game day coaching on Alfred's part of, uh, knowing how far he needed to extend Ben on squat and bench to have the win within reach on deadlift. That's when, when you're about ready to drop those cards and you don't know how it's going to unfold and you drop the cards on the table and, and, and they get pulled over and you see that you got the upper hand. You go back and you tell Alfred, don't worry, the powerlifting gods favor us. Today, well, we, knowing, are, knowing to, the today rules we are really the righteous. Too. We knowing are the, the rules that, uh, Using it to our advantage, you know, have, being able to change attempts, change openers and whatnot, because... From my Taekwondo days, we study our we study opponents all the time. We watch videos after videos after video of how they fight. Are they more offense, defense? Are they faster paced, lower paced, whatever? So I kind of picked up that habit and started using that in powerlifting. I would watch all their videos and look at the statistics. 
athletes, powerlifting athletes in general are creatures of habits. You know, they follow certain trends when it comes to selecting attempts. So knowing Connor's history, he's usually a very smart lifter. He picks his attempts wisely. He doesn't go full out, but he makes his attempts. So based off that and based off his openers, I had an idea of where he was heading at. So we purposely sandbagged Ben's opener to what he hit at Provincials about four months ago. And since then, even as a 74, his, his deadlift already went up. So it made it believable that that was what Ben was opening at. And after uh, squat and bench, Connor was ahead. And not by much, I think uh, ahead by seven and a half kilos. So our game strategy was wait till the last second and then submit the true opener, which puts us ahead by two and a half kilos. And from that point on, it was once they both made the opener, it was pretty much game. It, it was game over because we would just follow whatever Connor did and we had the bigger deadlift. So follow the leader after that. Yep. Plus you also have to factor in the powerlifting gods though, but seriously, that's a, <laughs> that's a factor. You gotta, you gotta be right with them. You know, you gotta be on the right side of it. Uh, I, I was going to say like, like these guys did, sometimes you can go the opposite way with changing the openers. Like you can purposely throw in a higher number and change it down or you could purposely throw in a lower number and change it up. And so you can, yeah, throw like, let's say five or 10 kilos under what your planned opener is because some people will just come into the meet, not looking at what training you did put up, or if you didn't put any training up, not looking at your, what your PR is in competition. And they'll just look at the, the scoreboard and they'll see, okay, this is what the forecasted total is and just go off for the forecast total and pick everyone's squat and bench uh, deadlift attempts off of that. But then, you know, you come during that break between bench and deadlift and you bump your deadlift up, you know, 10 kilos, all of a sudden that forecast total is different than what you, how you picked your squat <laughs> and bench presses. So you, you can go both ways and um, just bringing some, some stats into it here. Since we've been talking about um, people have tendencies and, before, you know, open powerlifting and before that was all powerlifting.com is like, you have to kind of go through uh, PDFs to see meet results, or even just like, you know, go to world and see tendencies from certain countries that had the same uh, national team head coach. So, you know, he's going to pick the same attempt strategy for all the lifters. And so Matt Gary would do that. He'd be like, okay, the Finnish, you know, do their strategy this way. The Russians do their strategy this way. You know, the Norwegians do their strategy this way. Then he started collecting all the data. So some of this data is a, a few years old, but I don't think the percentages have changed that much because, you know, maybe some people gotten smarter with their attempts, but also competitions got higher. So maybe some people missed some more attempts on, on average. This is about, it says 11,500 lifters at the national and international level. So there's a, a lot of data points, 7.5 attempts is the average made out of nine. And then from that, as far as bombing out about three and a half percent of raw lifters bomb out versus about 10 and a half percent of equipped lifters bomb out. Going into the openers, about 17% of squat openers are missed, 13% of bench openers, and 6% of deadlift openers. And then we don't know why someone would miss because, you know, with the meet results, you can't see whether it was depth or commands or they just, you know, pass on attempt. But Matt put in there that if you miss your opening attempt, you have a 66% chance you'll miss another attempt and a 20% chance that you'll bomb out. So that kind of goes towards like, you know, people who go up after their opener, then you're, you're, you're increasing your chance of missing another one or bombing out. Whereas like, you know, a lot of people like to stay the same, make sure you get it in, stay in the meet and go from there. And then going into third attempts, he looked mostly at, at squat and deadlift since they're usually the bigger absolute numbers and contribute most to your total is 43% of third attempt squats are missed. 49% of third attempt deadlifts are missed and 25% of people miss both their third attempt squat and their third attempt deadlift. Holy so, so if you go and you make your third attempt squat and deadlift, 
you're ahead of 25% of people for those two lifts that comp uh, comprise most of your total. So yeah, that's part of the, the strategy going in is like, do you want to, you know, go as much as close to your max as you can without going over, you know, price is right. Or, you know, filling up a glass of water. You don't want to go over yeah. to maximize your potential and let everyone else miss like, Oh, you know, 40% of people are going to miss the, their third squat. 50% of people are going to miss their third deadlift. I'll gain my ground then. Or do you want to yeah, try and be a really aggressive PR in your second, try and go for more for your third and just become one of these other stats. And then someone backdoors you from, you know, them to doing a more conservative approach. The other part still is, is knowing who you're competing against because also nobody can miss their thirds, right? And then if you're too conservative, you're yourself <laughs> in the foot too. So uh, it depends on, on who the coaches and competitors are. Yeah, that's why, that's why I like that, that mentality of like, you know, trying to maximize your potential or try and go as close as you can without going over unless, you know, you're purposely going lighter because you know you're going to win with easier, easier numbers. But some people will try and take the idea of, oh, going nine for nine, like, oh, who cares if I, you know, only open up at 80% and go nine for nine, like I'll still lose. That, that's not what we're saying. You're taking an extreme example and trying to take us out of context. We're trying to make our attempts to maximize our potential and make our biggest lifts on our third rather than making our biggest lift on our first and second where everyone can see exactly what our, our max was on that discipline and be able to pick their strategy off of that. We want to, we want to build that momentum. We want to be on the last one and, you know, maximize your potential for the day and then play a strategy too. If you don't have to maximize your, your, your true strength for that day. No, nobody's in this to pay thousands of dollars of their own money to train uh, and sacrifice their time during work nights uh, to train, fly to a competition miss a bunch of lifts and be told that missing will benefit them somehow. That's <laughs> not crap. Like, no one's in this for that. Like you're there to make lifts and do the best that you can. You know, there's, there's, there's no other successful outcome in powerlifting besides making lifts. That's fundamental. What do you guys feel about like when you have um, two lifters, same class and you're handling? <laughs> It's going to well, happen. What do you do? What do you do? What do you, what do you guys do? What do you do to be fair? Because I don't think people realize, you know, at a local level, whatever it is, what it is. Um, but if you're handling two people vying for a national title, you might end up deciding who wins. Like you were, <laughs> the only way you do that is if you actually don't think that handling works or, you know, but you, if you understand handling works and two people are, are, are neck and neck, if they're not neck and neck and there's a huge spread between them, it's different. But if they're real close competitors and they're going against each other, you can't play one against the other and handle them both at the same time and do anything. We just said you were doing a disservice to both of them and possibly yourself picking who wins if you're at the end when you're doing your last deadlifts or whatever, like it's not how many kilo do you have in you? Cause then you're not actually handling them. If you're taking their money for handling them, you're not handling them by saying, how many do you got it? How much kilo do you got in you? I'll just let you decide. No, I mean, I could get anybody to do that. Scout, tell me how the strategy to win. Oh, by the way, you're doing that for the other guy I'm going against to win this title. That doesn't work. It's crazy how some people don't, know this at this point How do, don't we all know this yet no well, I, i've been hearing rumors because alfred uh coaches morgan aquino garcia and arian coaches jonathan garcia oh so, no I, but, battle. i've been hearing rumors of uh wanting to spike each other's drinks and take a look <laughs> at their client files to see where they're at see so, you know there's what what is gonna happen here this isn't allowed now look at 
you're not both like like Arians, like Alfred's like, I can't make it. Arians like, I'll I'll tail your guy. I, I got you. <laughs> I got you, dog. You'd be like, see, this is what I'm saying. Some people wouldn't know. They'd be like, are you kidding me? You can't do this. Like, I don't even think Arian would raise his hand to be like, I got, he would know this is a conflict of interest, my man. I can't do this to you. But some people actually wouldn't know. They'd be like, why? Well, stronger, stronger person wins. But how do you guys handle it? If, if you're in that situation, do you just tell the person, you got to get somebody else. I can't do it. I mean, personally for my, my own lifters, I've never had a situation where I've had two lifters in the same exact class that are like that competitive head, head to head, like at a national international level. I, I have lots of lifters that spread throughout the different weight classes and age divisions and stuff like that. And I've even had times before where like a lifter told me they didn't come to me for coaching because I was already coaching one of their competitors that were close. So some people would just go to someone else to begin with. And sometimes coaches may not take on a lifter to begin with and saying like, Hey, I coach Taylor Atwood. I'm not, I can't take you on. So I've never had a, my own personal lifters for the national team. We actually had a situation when I was the sub junior and junior head coach and Bill McCarthy was my assistant where they were running two platforms at worlds at the same time with sub juniors and juniors going on at the same time. And we just happened to have two 83 kilo sub juniors and two 83 kilo juniors. And Bill and I were the only coaches. They didn't bring their own personal coaches. We didn't have any other assistant coaches. It was like Belarus. No one wanted to come and this and that. So I go, I go, Bill, what, what are the different ways we can do it? Like, you know, the timing of the platforms are going to be different like that. So what we decided is Bill was going to take the two sub junior 83s and I was going to take the two junior 83s, which naturally takes out some of the game day strategy where you can't do these tricks of like, you know, changing attempts or this and that, but you can still have some kind of strategy where, you know, you're planning for attempts and the other person doesn't know yours. And then on the flip side, that person knows their plan for attempts and doesn't, doesn't know yours. And so everything is separate. And also for me, I wasn't making the definitive attempt selection saying, okay, this is where we're going to do it because I know both sides. What I would do is okay. I would tell it was Sean Noriega and John Gruden for my side. I would tell Sean, like, this is what I think you're capable of for your third attempt squat, but you have to make the final decision for yourself because I know exactly what John Gruden is doing over here. So you have to give some freedom to them, which in this case, it was good since they're both a little bit experienced. They both kind of knew their, their own potential and then you can pick their attempts, but yeah, you still had the game day coaching of like, you know, timing the warmups and, giving them uh, idea when they're going to come up and what you think they should be their attempts and everything like that, what they need saying, Hey, you need another, you know, 10 kilos on your deadlift in order to get this place or five kilos to hold on to this place. But in the end, they had to make their decision because we just didn't have the coaches to have one dedicated coach for each of the four athletes competing to just have a separate strategy. But like in our case, if Alfred comes or let's say he can't come to the U S and John Downing has to handle Morgan, it would just all be separate. You know, John or Alfred knows uh, Morgan's strategy and I know Jonathan's strategy and you just don't share that in any of that information. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing is no looking at each other's client files. Like this is, that's confidential, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's made the best, made the best team, made the best uh, individual athlete team, uh, Arian and Jonathan or Alfred and John and Morgan uh, made the best team win. Yeah, you, you similar like a- situation happened at Worlds actually, where um, Jason and Ben was coaching Yuri, and Jason and I coached Owen Hubbard. So on game day, Jason would coach Yuri, and I would coach Owen. So that way, there's little to no conflict of interest. They're both, I, I, they were both relatively close for um, total wise. But going to have to have a really good day yeah. to beat Owen, but it was it wasn't out of reach either. So. 
Yeah, so that was the most fair uh, solution that we, we thought of at that point in time. Yeah, and um, also when you're, if you guys got like Google Docs sharing and you notice, well, I see it viewed by Arian on a lot of my clients leading to this. I wouldn't have to, <laughs> he's, he's gone back like six months on my guy. Yeah, this is <laughs> or, depressing. Or last edit done by Arian. Oh man, the yeah, didn't really yeah, changed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Editing the file. <laughs> yeah, like, well, Google Drive, like, why is every one of my files viewed by Arian? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> because I, I, my guy's got an in-wrap on this last week. That's interesting. I don't At remember. 100%. At 100% in-wrap. Arian's like, man, just, just overlooking. I didn't touch anything. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side for, for a situation like this specific situation is not only are Jonathan and Morgan fighting for that podium, there's a couple other guys in the 66s that are, that are going to be up there too. So then it's like, you don't have so much time to only focus on, Oh, well this one person, cause you got three other people that can come and beat you as well. And, and sometimes with coaches, coaching companies are maybe then working together or national teams is like, you may have two lifters in the same weight class, but you're also competing against another country. So depending on how close they are, maybe by deadlift, if it's not close anymore, then like, okay, let's work together. Let's put your, maybe put your attempt here to give us more time to make a change or like, Hey, where are you going to go to? I'm about to drop down on this and actually work together because you got other people to worry about too, these days. Sneaky, sneaky. It's kind of like formula one where uh, your actual, your teammate is your biggest competitor because you have two people in equal machinery. So Ferrari is two drivers, Mercedes is two drivers. And uh, you're, it's actually now it's, it's mono and mono because our car is the same. So who's faster, who's going to win. And each driver has their own set of mechanics and their own set of engineers within the team that call their race. But every now and then the head boss could say, Hey, like, you know, you need to let Lewis Hamilton buy, like he's faster than you, or he's better than you or our organization needs them to win. And you still have to respect that team call as well. So I think powerlifting in, in this situation where you have two, two lifters in, in direct competition with one another uh, and you somehow coach both of them, I think it's very similar where you have to divide up the, the leadership. Uh, we saw at 2019 Worlds too that the, the, you know there's some strategy to this as well. It's not just pure strength. So it's like it's like Ricky Bobby with Talladega Nights, man. Shake and bake, right? Sometimes, sometimes number two's got to clear the way for number one. If if it's a, like Jordan if, needed Pippin back in the day. Come on, baby. You know it is what it is. Uh, listen, I got to do one more pee break, fellas. You want to do one more, and then we continue yeah. after that. Yes, sure. please. Okay. Sure. Man can't hold his. And welcome back. Okay, so let's let's move along into our joint project we've been working on. Somewhat keeping it low, keep for a while. People notice we've been working together with uh, giving information out with positions of power. Um, always wanted to give, like obviously we do preview shows, recap shows, you know, highlights, et cetera, but wanted to give some valuable information to the powerlifting masses, but it had to be credible. It couldn't just be, again, like this is when people think King of Lifts, oh, I made it on King of Lifts. You know, we wanted that. Well, you made it because it's premiums content, right? Like, oh, that's that's good to make it onto there. So want the exact same thoughts in terms of the content we give when it comes to information on programming, information on technical work. And so it had to be from an elite source. And um, 
obviously the strength guys fit the bill for all the reasons we already just covered. So when uh, you had approached talking about working on a possible collaboration of um, offering services to the public at a price point that would be a lot easier, like the, the majority of power lifters out there aren't going to be in there for 10 years, uh, making it all the way to US nationals, making it all the way to the world's majority of people might not end up like Taylor Atwood. So they're not looking to go all in with in terms of uh, pricing, but they do want coaching, programming, et cetera, with a bit of that Taylor Atwood experience. So it is the coaching staff and services behind, and I'm, I'm using Taylor Atwood because he's obviously, uh, you know, could be arguably the best powerlifter in the world right now, but your guy's resume speaks for themselves with the multiple world champions you have. But for $29.99 a month, people are going to get this app. Now let's talk about this a second here. This is a service that again, is not just the template. It's not just, you know, it's not just those typical bro science here, do this and uh, you'll be all right. You know, let's talk about how you devise this because a lot of thought is put into it and then, uh, and then we'll work from there. So it initially came as a shifting of the curve, if I'm not mistaken, and I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. So the number one advantage of periodization is the ability to systematically progress training volume over time. And when you're progressing training volume over time, we're not just talking about progressing it for one week, progressing it for one phase, progressing it here or there. We're talking about taking your entire competition prep, so your 12-week competition prep, which we would call a macro cycle, and we're talking about imposing a progressive overload stimulus on that macro cycle. So doing more volume than you did the last time. Now, we earlier in this episode, we talked about how we start working with clients. It's the shifting the curve uh, methodology that we use. So uh, we ask clients, how many times per week have you trained recently? Uh, have you made progress during that time period? Yes or no. And so client may say, I've been training uh, squats twice a week. I've made some progress. Trained bench twice a week. I didn't make any progress on that. Trained deadlift once per week. Wasn't really working for me. So from that, we would deduce that, okay, so if we want to impose progressive overload onto this new lifter, we should start training them at the frequency that was working on squat. So we can do two times per week on squat. Perhaps we should add a day of bench press training because when you, frequency is only a proxy of increasing lifting volume. So when you add another day, you can add a lot more volume onto the lifter to impose a progressive overload stimulus. So we'd add a third day on bench press and we'd add a second day on deadlift. And so now what we've gotten is we're doing training that's working on squat and we're progressively overloading you on the lifts that we're not working. And so we can build from this foundation. Now with shifting the curve, what we wanted to do was we wanted to make a periodized training system accessible uh, via price point to, to anyone around the world. Cause we know that our, our coaching services cost a, a premium amount. Uh, and so what we've done is we've created the innovative shifting the curve filter, which will ask users how many times per week you train specifically the back squat, bench press and deadlift 
in the past four months. And then you'll say, hey, I trained it two times or three times or one times. And then it'll say, have you made progress at this frequency? And if you say yes, it'll recommend you to the set of programs that you should be doing to attain a progressive overload response at that frequency. And if you say no, it'll recommend you to the next level of programs that you, you should be doing uh, so that you're imposing a progressive overload response on your training. And so uh, shifting the curve is a training system that ranges from training your main lifts twice per week, three times per week, to doing the same style of training that Taylor Atwood does uh, now currently as the, as the current world's best lifter uh, in the men's open division. So in total, I think we have just under 250 weeks of training on the app. Uh, it's a choose your own journey style of training app. We have 12 week off seasons and 12 week competition phases for training two times per week training three times per week, and then training full on uh, in the same training style that Taylor Atwood trains. So you're looking at 72 weeks of unique training at three, four, or five workouts per week, depending on how much time, uh, how many times per week you can make it to the gym. Uh, and then within the workouts, we have uh, video demonstrations, technique cues on how to execute your main lifts, uh, we have comprehensive warm-up guidelines from, you know, drawing from my experience in professional sports with the Calgary Flames uh, and working with NFL athletes and UFC fighters. And then uh, it's even choose your own journey when it comes to the accessory exercises that you select. So um, we've given you a variety of different back movements, quad movements, hamstring movements to target different muscle regions and you could select uh, which exercises you want to do on each day. Um, so we feel that uh, for $29.99 US a month, uh, the Shifting the Curve system is one of the best products uh, that, one of the best powerlifting program products uh, that's ever been put out. Uh, and we have results to back it when we put uh, hundreds of people through Shifting the Curve, the original version, uh, when it was released on the product platform, My Strength Book, over three years ago today. So uh, we're excited to bring a modernized version, uh, a revitalized version of Shifting the Curve uh, to, the, to the new My Strength Book app, which will be called Positions of Power. Um, and yeah, if you have any questions on that, you could ask away. So this Taylor Atwood program sounds like it's going to be nasty. You better come ready for it, because um, <laughs> it's my understanding. What would this What would this essentially look like? This is going to be the make or break. I could see a lot of people. I mean, obviously, you don't have to go that route. Uh, you have plenty of options, like you said. It's almost like a choose your own adventure where you're slotting in how many days a week and what what's best for yourself. And there's a lot of like a questionnaire process where you're moving through the filters. So it's a customized program. It's not just like a template. But um, this Taylor Atwood one intrigues me. And I could see some people being like, look, for $29.99, I want to see what Taylor Atwood does. And I want to see if I could do what he does. Yeah, so the, the shifting the curve model starts off with prioritizing the squat and the bench press. Because improving the squat tends to have a carryover effect to improving the deadlift. 
you're strengthening your quads and you can ultimately break the floor with more weight. That's really helpful in many cases. But as the shifting the curve model progresses from 2X to 3X, we start to add more training volume onto squat and bench, but also to deadlift, uh, where in STC two times per week, the deadlift volume is quite low. It's coming more of like a medium level of volume in STC three times per week. And then with the Taylor Atwood approach, you're training every lift full on SPD format three times a week, sometimes four. Uh, so it's, this is how Taylor trains. Um, if you, if you want to select from the Atwood signature series, uh, be prepared to be challenged. Uh, because <laughs> one thing that I would say and shifting the curve encapsulates this Taylor didn't start off training the way that he does now. He systematically progressed over the course of many years to being able to do these workouts. And these are just his workouts. Like they don't, they don't kill him. He can come back again the next day and do it again if he had to. But if you're only training two times per week and you go from that to training like Taylor Atwood, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna push you uh, to a, it's gonna be a religious experience. You know what I'm saying? So. It's gonna, it's gonna be a religious, for twenty nine ninety nine. you will speak to God, you will see the face of God. And it's really, it's that's a hell of a bargain. Okay, it's gonna change your life. If that's what you want, go for it. But if you're a beginner, please don't jump straight to that with series. It is, man, I, seriously, how intriguing is it? Like, how many people are gonna be like, I, I, I just wanna take a look at this. You know, I want to see what is Taylor Atwood even doing. Yeah, like a lot of people want that barometer of, um, because he has not even just in 2019, which was our last year where we had a world championships. Not only was he roundly considered lifter of the year, but he won the best lifter of the world championships as well. So whether you're using formula or consensus opinion, this is what Taylor Atwood did. So then when a couple years later, you guys are releasing, all right, here it is. If you think you're right, you want to come to scratch and take a look, how many people are going to be like, look, for $29.99, I think I want to see, I want to live that life and see what it's about. Even if I can't, even if I can't hang, I want to give it a go or at least see what it looks like. Now, is there a point of, because I'm going to, <laughs> I want to see this. I, I'm honestly intrigued. I, it's, it's one of those deals where like, I think I'm working hard, but am I working as hard as other people are working? You know, how hard am I actually working comparatively? Or am I overworking? And it's, there's some people who probably, you know, there's horses you whip and horses you pull back. Um, and, and am I just going way too far out where it's like, my God, man, what am I doing here? You know, Taylor, there, there might be the odd freak out there who's overworking. And it's like, look, at that's not, that's work efficiently as well, not just working hard as well. So it is intriguing. If nothing else, you get a barometer of what, you know, arguably the best power lifter in the world is doing right now, um, which I think is for $29.99 worth its, its pay as well. But are you at all worried about people now are going to see what Taylor does? Because I'm, as a jujitsu fan, um, the greatest, the number one jujitsu guy in the world right now is Gordon Ryan. And the number one coach is John Danaher. And for a long time, they, they weren't releasing videos, how-to videos and strategy videos. And jujitsu is a lot of strategy. Um, until they were a little ahead and they're winning titles and, and by far clearing away the number one and they're releasing stuff, but they're not going to show you exactly what they got right now. So you got to think this is the strategy where, okay, leading into this U S raw nats, you're not showing the peaking for the raw nats type deal. 
this is when he was winning worlds type deal or what's the timeline on this? Yeah. So with the Taylor Atwood program, uh, we're not releasing to you his exact peaking protocol. Cause I think that's a pretty individualized thing. Sure. Uh, in fact, we're, we're making this program to be a logical progression from training. If three times per week is no longer working to you, our intermediate program stream, here's something more advanced that will push you, that will overload you to the next level. Uh, so the characteristics of, of Taylor's training are you're going to do a lot of volume in the off season to, to build muscle. Uh, building muscle is one of the most modifiable long-term factors for improving strength. Based on very simple math of if you have more contractile proteins pulling on a joint, you'll, you'll, improve, you'll improve your capacity to, to produce more force, right? So uh, based on that premise, we do a lot of volume in the off season. That also helps Taylor to stay ready to, to keep his skills up in the off season. And it prepares him for the amount of volume that he does near competition. So we're talking uh, eight weeks out is, is really when we start our push. And from eight weeks out to four weeks out, we call this a development phase. Uh, really, it's where you're, you're, you're aiming to develop maximum strength. So uh, you're training with high intensity, but also high volume. We're pushing. And the ramp up to that uh, to the peak of the, de of the development phase, to the peak volume of the development phase. Uh, it's a lot of, as data-driven strength was talking, now it is, it, it didn't used to be this way, but it is now, it's, it's an accumulation of a lot of easy work. So very low percentage of velocity drop-off for each set. Uh, Taylor sent me his training yesterday. He's doing triples at 85%. And on set number eight, on squat with 250 kilos, he had 0% velocity drop off, right? So we're just looking for high force output, high force output, and we're gonna continue adding more work each week, so long as we're in those conditions. But uh, where we differ from what the guys at, at Data Driven Strength uh, talked about is uh, we transition towards now high effort per set for a few weeks before we taper. Uh, and that's the peaking process. That's the overreaching process of, of uh, taking yourself to a place where you haven't gone before, before competition. It's hard work. It's high intensity. It's a lot of effort. It really pushes you and you've got to dig deep to make it through. Uh, but this is what Taylor does when he's six, five weeks out from a competition. He's hitting rep PRs for set after set after set. And that's what shifting the curve can do for you because uh, it's that systematic progression over time. And then when you get to the competition phase, uh, I think there's, there's two main streams of, of logic out there uh, in programming. And one is that uh, you're going you're gonna to do top sets that are hard, uh, but then you're going to do backup sets that are pretty easy to reduce the amount of fatigue. Uh, and I, I, I do wonder at times if training that way uh, can can make your strength performance and your ability to maintain strength performance for nine lifts across an entire beat makes it a little bit less likely. Uh, it's more variable, right? You'll, you'll have your peaks in strength, but you're not used to doing nine repeated efforts of maximal force output and, and still 
you know, on your ninth deadlift, being just as strong as you were uh, on your first squat at the start of the day. So there's that approach or there's our approach where you're going to be used to doing like, I mean, Taylor's done SPD days with his openers and second attempts leading like 15, eight days out from powerlifting competition. He's done 20 to 25 reps total on squat. <laughs> like he's well-practiced and we haven't, we haven't hit the highs of highs in training with those top sets, but like, we know what we're doing on our first two attempts of the day, you know, and, and he's not going to mess that up. We know what the issues are. We've strategized around it and we know where his strength is going to fall within. So you show up on game day uh, with that amount of preparation compared to a lifter who may only be used to doing three hard lifts in a workout. And we're used to doing like 20, bring it on. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. Well said. Um, so looking at this, if someone's going in there, are they, do they have options for RPEs based off of uh, percentage from their one rep max or how does, how does it get doled out to them? Yeah. So uh, as Arian talked about with the study that he was a part of, like different people are, are good or not good at rating RPEs. So uh, we didn't want to give that amount of flexibility to uh, lifters. We wanted to tell them, find your one rep maximum before you begin shifting the curve. You don't have to do it before every phase, but before you start your first shifting the curve program, do it on competition equipment in squat bench press deadlift order at the body weight that you're going to train at and make sure for, for Pete's sake that you're squatting the depth, that you're keeping your butt on bench, that you're pausing it and that you're locking out appropriately. Like don't take shortcuts here, do things the right way. Take those numbers put them into the app and then we'll tell you what weights to lift from there on out. Now, um, if training is way too hard and you're approaching the point of failure, so you've got one repetition in reserve before failure, uh, we, we have in the frequently asked questions section, uh, a recommendation of not to exceed that. So you should never hit failure. And if you've got one rep left in the tank on a set, you should probably lower your one rep maximum. Uh, if that happens, workout after workout. So uh, we do have some limitations on how hard you should work, but otherwise uh, shifting the curve is a program that's here to progress you. Um, it's very likely that you haven't been training as hard as you can be. I say that as a generalized statement to everyone uh, based on what I've seen throughout my career and shifting the curve is gonna, it's gonna show you uh, what how hard you can work. And I think that's a very uh, eye-opening thing. <laughs> People are going to be like, I suddenly feel a little lazy. I wasn't doing as much as I thought I was, but that's probably the case uh, more times than not. Um, is there also options on there for someone who wants to have, like if they think they might have an issue on one of their lifts where they can get eyes on that? So we will have uh, other services related to technique coaching. If you want to purchase our uh, the power portfolio education curriculum, or to read up on, on how to refine your nutritional supplementation and health and wellness habits. Uh, we'll have other resources on uh, positionsofpower.com uh, where you can access that. Or even if you want to book a consultation with one of our coaches, uh, you'll have the ability to uh, receive mentorship or guidance about some of the training related problems that you have uh, by booking us in through one of those services as well. So you got 
you got the full TSG access here. I think it's very valuable. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's a pretty good deal, and, my and, friend. And at all at all different levels. Um, like like we said, as far as like when it comes to programming, is like you know there's free templates out there. Then there's like you know the one on one personalized coaching, and then there's like this option where it's like an in between. And same thing when it comes to all this information. If someone wants help with technique or something like that, you have the free post that we're doing on Instagram. You have like, you know, a consultation on one other extreme where you can pay for someone's time and get your questions answered specifically. Or you also have this middle ground where, you know, you can buy the power portfolio or you're going to have the videos on the app and stuff like that and kind of do it yourself. If you like, you know, kind of like figuring it out on your own, you have this in between. There's, there's like a generation of people who prefer certain avenues like that, like the generation that learns, you could learn anything off of YouTube. You know, <laughs> there's those people who are like, I just, let me see the videos, but other people will want a hands-on face-to-face Zoom calls and have that. I think it, it depends on where you're at, um, both in your career and then in terms of some people, you know, they want to kind of dance to their own beat and drive their own car type deal, so to speak. But some other people are look at, if I'm going to the US Raw Nats to actually win it, or if I'm going the world's, I'm going to actually need to have straight up conversation with Arian or Jason or Alfred right face to face and have a little more. So it is what it is, right? Depends on where you're at and what your goals are. Um, and also in this app, like what are some of the other features? I think you, you were talking about how um, you could actually have it's built in training logs, you know, you could log video, store video in there, the whole nine. It's like a training diary that you could keep track of your progress and, um, you know, conceivably for years to come, doubling back, looking at what, what did I hit for this? Because some people, you remember things differently than they were. What did I hit? Let me view that video. Let me see what it looks like. There's, um, you know, so it's a lot more of an honest data approach. The data, like the data is not going to lie to you. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing software, actually. Um, I mean, yeah, for $29.99, you get access to the programs, you fill out the STC filter based on what the STC filter recommends you do, you download that program into your calendar, start working your way through it. We have demonstrations, cues, warm-ups, accessory exercise options, like you name it. But uh, in addition to that, you can uh, use this app as your training log, so you can open up let's say you did your, your horizontal pull option, uh, which would be a row, of course. And we have two different horizontal pull options in the program. You'd say, I did, I did this weight uh, for, for this many reps at this RPE, and you can log it over time. And you could do that for squat, bench, dead, any other exercise in the program. Uh, you can even upload a video of yourself doing it into the app in case you wanna look back on one set of squat that you did 23 weeks ago, uh, maybe you hit a PR then to, to see how your technique has improved or see how your lifting has changed or uh, just to see, you know, to have that highlight kind of like to make it a memory of, of what you've done. But as you use this app as a training log, uh, it will also store information on your personal records for the exercises that you've done. Uh, it'll graph out your volumes, your intensities, your RPEs per set. So if you want to access your training metrics and dig deeper into the workload management aspect of powerlifting, uh, you can do that too. So uh, really, it's, it's, it's not only the programs you're receiving, but it's also an amazing uh, athlete management system uh, platform 
that you can access on Android, iOS, or the web uh, that you're receiving as well. And I, I think that's a really cool and remarkable thing. Uh, this that shows how far powerlifting has come from drawing training on a chalkboard, you know? Like. Yeah, I was just about to say, um, like first of all, even in terms of like, if you double back and you're comparing uh, video, but like not everything you want to post on Instagram, obviously we've, we've covered this, especially the mundane stuff, but sometimes, um, so you, some people are like, well, I have Instagram. If I'm going to double back and take a look at what my squat was. Yeah. But you're not posting everything. And there's, and there's a lot of times working sets, you just film it, log it, hold it. And then later on, when you start developing certain issues, I got a little bit of a tilt on my squat. Hang on a second here. You double back and you're reviewing your squat previously 23 weeks ago my hand placement's a little further out. And when did this start happening? And you start realizing certain things. And that only happens like, you know, I've noticed this in my powerlifting career and everybody has certain things shift. Well, when did I start moving my feet out quite that way? My stance has widened a little bit and I didn't really notice it over time. Now you got to sit back and think on it. And these are the things that when just log away and keep the data, you know, it's like these things won't lie. And then if you need to, to have a consultation be like, I think I'm going to book Arian and be like, take a look at this. Why do you think this is happening right now? And Arian can now pull up your files and be like, well, let's take a look at 23 weeks. So let's take a look at right now. Let me take a look at your numbers. You can actually send them your numbers. Now you have it all journalized. You're working with something. If you need help, as opposed to just, you know, the, <laughs> the old fashioned, show me what you're doing right now. Well, it feels different. I mean, how so? You know, it's, it's harder to work with. Right. So um, yeah, in terms of like leveling up, I think for a lot of people uh, who are just working on that, you know, first year, second year, third year, even fourth year range, this is all going to be a massive level up for them in terms of actually having a program that shifts to their needs, as opposed to just a straight up template, actually having a real database on their training and seeing charts and everything come up. So they actually see how they're, they're progressing and then having all these abilities and all this information at their fingertips. It's kind of like everything you told us earlier in the podcast. And now it's, it's available now for people who for like 29 99. So it's not like, Oh my God, I can't afford to level up like this guys. This is like a hobby sport for me. It's unrealistic for me to be dropping that kind of coin. It's like, here's the best thing we could do for you. Yeah. I, I think, uh like shifting the curve is our, our foundation logic when we start a client up. And then from there, we're looking at uh, our, our, our core belief in training is that there's a specific dose of training that you require to, uh, to progress, to continue to progress. So whether that's to build muscle or achieve the uh, improvements in your neuromuscular coordination to improve your strength performance for many, many years. And so um, what you're getting is like the foundation of our coaching. You're not getting the individualization of it, but it's the foundational knowledge. And the foundational knowledge is based on really ever since Milo of Croton carried a baby calf up the hill in ancient Greece every day. And as the calf got heavier, he was imposing overload on his body and he got bigger and he got stronger. We've known that progressive overload was the, if there ever was a secret, it's this. It's not, it's not the fancy bells and whistles. It's not the novel exercise. It's not all mental toughness. It's progressive overload. We're building muscle and we're improving your skill under the bar. 
So let's do that. And that's what shifting the curve is, is really good for, because uh, it's, it's based entirely around that logic. And, and is one of the questions um, in there, I know, uh, do you have access to this? Do you have access to that? Is one of them, do you have access to a baby calf? <laughs> is, is one of the questions in the filters for the app do you have access to a baby calf uh because if so you're you're in luck we have the milo program and it's historically <laughs> it historically works but uh, i think that would be a lot more beneficial than some of the powerlifting programs that people are currently doing wow hey oh hey no you're you're not lying <laughs> you see some funky stuff out there uh yeah. you're not lying um, is there more we should touch up on, or do you guys, do we have time to do an overrated, underrated, do you guys think? Oh, we have time. Okay. Uh, how about you, Alfred, Arian? I'm good for time. Good, cool. And um, okay. have we touched up on everything in terms of, uh, you know, programming and in terms of the new Positions of Power app that'll be available? We'll put a link in the King of the Lifts bio, by the way, um, positionsofpower.com and everything will roll out, but... Uh, um, is there anything else you think we should touch up on? Obviously, this doesn't have to be the only time we sit down to talk about this. I think you gave a pretty good synopsis. Yeah, I, I think we've, I think we've covered a lot about our training system, um, just in and amongst uh, the conversation. Um, I think there's so many different sources now with social media where you can get your information from. Um, at the beginning of this conversation, you asked if we were comfortable with releasing, um, you know, the structure of Taylor's training, uh, for example, which I covered on this podcast. I explained it like 20 minutes ago. Um, the answer is that these are the programs that have been done in the lab since 2010, uh, starting with, you know, Dr. Mike Sordos and then evolved by Ben Isgirl and then taken by us and evolved by us. We don't own you know, doing this many sets at this many reps at this percentage, that's nonsense. Like anyone can do that. Uh, it's, it's the mental model and the thought process behind it. And uh, knowing objectively what you've done and being able to, to manipulate the training over time that makes our coaching service valuable. And shifting the curve is like rough proxies for how much you've done. So you don't know the exact amount, but it's it's, it's showing you what the foundation is for how to progress throughout your entire lifting career. And that's, that's tremendously valuable as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, it's a good base to start with as well to, if you don't know where, what you're doing and how it's going to work with the progressive overload, you're going to learn a lot along the ways. And if you want to go all, if you, <laughs> you're feeling daring, my friend, you're feeling tough, my friend, you, you'll work all the way into the Taylor Atwood signature series and <laughs> see what happens. You'll be tested. Um, Ari, do you, do you, I, I put you on the spot. I didn't tell you ahead of time about an overrated, underrated. Do you, do we happen to have any uh, overrated, underrated ready for the go? Yeah, I, I could go through a list. I was thinking of maybe bringing another one back up and hearing these guys' opinion on it. Um, uh, my, uh, my internet's a little unstable right now, so it's going in and out. So I'll let these guys talk more and bring their experience from other sports other than powerlifting. So the, the first one we'll go over, we'll do overrated, underrated that your coach has to be an elite level athlete. I, I would say my opinion is a little biased because I, I don't consider myself an elite athlete. Uh, so I say that is overrated. Wait a second. Hang on a second. Oh. Didn't you just tell me you were national team 
national champion, national team in two different sports though, man, including like Taekwondo. Like I, I've seen Olympic Taekwondo where they, these guys are like high flying the whole night. Plus you have strength. So you have agility, strength, speed from Taekwondo and you had strength because you made a Canadian national team. Is this extremely humble or what's going on here? Extremely I, I personally just don't consider myself elite. I, yeah. I've done those things, but that's... Listen, well, I, I knew what I knew what answer you were gonna give, but I, I want to hear you go a little bit more deeper into and give your opinion and maybe give the listeners an idea of what it's like in these other sports. So, like in, in taekwondo and stuff like that, what is it like as far as coaches? Were they yeah, like yeah. you know elite level lifters, athletes that then teach everyone else, or are they just strictly coaches? Good question. Yeah, let's hear it. A lot of times, it's it's very much like powerlifting. You have kind of a bit of both. You have very successful coach or athletes who don't really have anywhere else to go. So they uh, transitioned to coaching or they've been raised as, as coaches. They've, they've started with running a school, running a class, and they've kind of developed a niche for coaching wise. And so it, it can really go either way. Um, I wouldn't solely base my decision on just the, the uh, resume of the athlete's career, just because you might just be a good athlete. You know, for lack of a better term, you might be genetically gifted and you might be a phenomenal athlete. You might be fantastic at following the program, following instructions, and you perform like a boss. But that doesn't mean you are able to replicate or even critically think about those things and apply the principles to people you are working with. Uh, yeah. Like for, uh, I was talking about jujitsu earlier, like you're talking Taekwondo. Yeah. And um, I was telling about Gordon Ryan and John Danaher. John Danaher is revered as the greatest jujitsu coach of all time. He has the most successful team we'd ever seen. And he coaches the greatest athlete we've seen. And John Danaher, I don't even know if he's ever competed in jujitsu, which is a combat sport. It's like, how do you know that? Well, he trains, he can, he, he, he does technical, but the analytical work it takes, like being like, especially powerlifting, being strong has nothing to do with analytical, like everything Jason's talking about developing these systems, crunching numbers and, you know, studying the progressive, vote. like this is not stuff that being strong has no correlation to that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's the same thing where athletes, you could see that. Um, but Jason, let me get your back. Or what, what do you think? Cause you've dealt with hockey as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm going to say it's overrated because of my background. Uh, it hasn't helped me back in my career at all. Um, besides a group of weak-minded people who like to hate on it and say, oh, he's not a great athlete, so he can't, he can't coach. It's like, well, you know, uh, I have national championship behind me. Uh, I have three world championships um, in the last two years. What have you done? You know, like that's my response to that because I've gone to school, I've I've gotten my degree, I've I've competed myself, I've done the training, and I've also surrounded myself with some damn good mentors who've who've taught me the ins and outs of this, who's coached world champions themselves. And so I think it's a bunch of BS if uh that like you need to be a great athlete to be a great coach. I think oftentimes um it goes, being a great coach goes far beyond that. Now, what I will say is um, I believe that athletes who have then become coaches have far more experience to draw upon in the communication and uh, relational components of uh, guiding a lifter through their career. Um, of course, I've, I've done strength training. I, I train 
four to five times a week consistently. But um, in terms of like telling Taylor what this is like, you know, at the world championship level, I can't draw upon my experience as a, as an athlete at a world championship to like prepare him for this, you know, we're, I'm kind of like a passenger to those emotions. Um, and so we, we experience it together for the first time. Uh, but I think the advantage of, of being a passenger on so many different journeys with so many different athletes is that I've experienced the different levels now. Like I've worked everywhere from grassroots to collegiate to the world championship level. So I'm ready to go, you know? Um, in hockey, like I grew up playing street hockey, like hockey and intramurals at school, played two years of ice hockey, but was, I was never like a highly competitive uh, hockey player by, by any stretch of the imagination. I've shown that you don't need to be a hockey player to produce tremendous value at the NHL level either. Like you've, you just gotta have skills, you know, you gotta be good. So I, you know, I, I think there's so much BS, there's so much ego and, and hubris and narcissism in our community that continuously tears itself apart every time it grows, right? And I think we're seeing that recently as well with the whole USAPL development. Sport grows and then boom, something, something happens. It's the history of the sport. It's like, none of this stuff matters, you know, like pick the coach that you relate with and that you think is going to solve your problem. It is a, because like I said, I mean, it's almost like a cop out. If somebody's really strong, I, I mean, I don't want to name names, but we know people who are extremely strong power lifters. They do not know how to actually program. They're probably going to slide you their templated program they use. They don't know anything about handling the rules. Pro like, you know, any of the background and science around any of this, if you're going to push them on these things, they're just like, they're extremely strong, naturally gifted individuals who work very hard. But in terms of the analytical thinking, that is not the same skill set. The skill sets do not correlate. They're, it's not the same, right? So it's uh, if you're just going to, hey, man, how did you get this strong? Because you're really strong, so I want to be like you. You're going to end up getting their template. And we already know what works for them isn't necessarily going to work for you. So if that's all it is, you're going to end up going to a coach like that. And that guy, girl, will take your money. But um, so that's why it's, you got to be careful. And um, I think that's the, where we were previous generations in a gym, you see a big guy and you're like, Hey dude, Hey bro. That's the bro science. Hey bro. How did you get like this? But I think the more and more we know with social media uh, podcasts and everything, we, we know like that would not fly. Like, look at the Calgary flames. Don't give a fuck. They're like, what's your background? Don't tell me what your bench press is. That's not how this works. This is a lot more intricate and nuanced the conversation than that. And it should be for all professional sports and is, and it should be for powerlifting. And um, I think we're starting to get there now when people are starting to understand when they're picking their coaches, they want a little bit more than um, refer me to your Instagram and now I'm comfortable, I'm gonna go with I, you. Like, I actually think that in some way, uh, 
and I like I plan I'm, I'm 28 right now I plan on pursuing a lot more experience you know uh, promoting competitions competing in powerlifting uh, becoming a referee like I'm here like I'm, I'm in this for life and I'm pursuing more experience because I know it's an area I have to improve and I'll gain a lot in that time frame but I, I think that not uh, not being experience-based right out of the gates was actually a blessing for me because I had more of an open mind and I, I looked around at what everyone was doing and I tried to, to piece together based off of the information that I had the best possible approach. And one of the problems I had to figure out was uh, how do I take so as a rec recreationally strength trained male of 16 years, how do I take Taylor Atwood from silver medal two years in a row, the world championship to gold? I don't have the world championship experience to draw upon. So you got to find a mentor who can, who can help. And then, and then through that process, you start to create an actual system of critical thinking and a mental model to train people regardless of where they are along their development. And so now this, this mental model is much greater than my experience in strength training has ever been. It's something that it's now, it's analytical, as you said. Uh, and I, I don't think that it would have been this way if I wasn't as open-minded uh, when I started coaching. No, if you're already strong, that's the problem. Um... If you come up, I've seen it where somebody's already naturally very strong. So they think they got it all figured out, but it's like, no, man, you're just super duper strong already. So you, you are, you're not going to listen to people or you're not humble enough to actually have to reach out and, and ask a variety of different people and seek re different resources and balance it out against your own biases because you're already strong. You're always the strongest guy in the room. You used to everybody asking you or strongest girl in the room. You used to people asking you for advice, et cetera. So you automatically think this is working. It's always worked. I, I got it. I know what you do for bench, but with you start coaching other people and you're not humble like that, you're just going to assume, well, it worked for me, so it should work for you. And this is what I did. And I don't know what's wrong with you. Maybe you just got shitty genes. Well, no, you're a shitty coach. You, a coach needs to, it's way better to have a coach come out humble and, and just do tons of research and data from a multiple different sources, take on mentors and, and, and learn. And, um, I mean, that's just not with powerlifting, that's probably with everything, but uh, it's true. Yeah. So I can see where, like I said earlier, man, you, you're either humble or you're, or you're about to be humbled, but you're one or the other, right? But what do you think, Arian? I forget what you said about this. Yeah. I mean, at the last time we spoke about it, I'm pretty sure we all went overrated. So everyone heard my opinion on that last time. Uh, a couple of things just to add in there too, like for this conversation is not only then does it become the aspect of being a good coach and like knowing, knowing how to program. But if, if you are a good athlete, that also then becomes a good coach and you're getting more and more clients, you have a cap that you reach from there. You may want to start a company like Jason did with the strength guys. Now you have to be a good business person of like how to like, you know, invest money in your business, build out a website, build out your athlete management system, figure out what coaches to hire. How are you going to break down the pricing? All this stuff like that. This just goes way beyond programming now. Now you have to have those kind of abilities as well and may even be a risk taker. Like Jason said, he rebuilt the strength guys multiple times. Not only like, you know, 
bodybuilding and powerlifting, but within the coaches within powerlifting. So there's all these other abilities that need to come in in order to be a, a good coach and a good, have a good coaching business. Um, then the other thing that Jason said, uh, he doesn't think it held him back at all, but I would disagree with him there. I think that if you took like, you know, two people and you said, okay, this person doesn't have any education as far as exercise science, something related and wasn't a good athlete. And maybe they don't have very much experience versus this other person who maybe has a undergraduate or a graduate degree and maybe like has a national championship or world championship. If they're going to get selected for something, most likely people will be like, oh, this person's a good athlete and they have the experience. Um, so I think it's more difficult for the first person without the education or experience to get there. But I, I'm not, I'm not saying that to say that it's not possible for those people. Because I would say that's exactly what happened for me. I got my degree in mechanical engineering. I've never won like a raw nationals or gone to worlds or anything like that. I just built off of the base eye information of like, you know, let me learn from experience, from experience for myself. Let me experience from coaching people for free. Let me take the USAPL coaching course. Let me take the USAPL uh, referee certification or anything like that, build myself up. So I, I do think I can, and in powerlifting and other sports, it does hold those people back, but I think you can still come out of it as you see with the coaches here. Yeah, yeah in the long term, it hasn't held us back, but in the short term, it was it was hard to get started, you know. And uh, in the short term, we definitely could have known more by having more experience, um, but we were we were persistent with it. And uh, in the long term, it's kind of like leveled the playing field, so to speak. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. Like, um, you can come from all different types of backgrounds. If you go 100 into it, like, obviously you might've had, uh, in terms of your educational background area, it might've been different, but you also immersed yourself, you know, aligned yourself with Dr. Zordas or sorry, how do you pronounce his last name? Yeah. Zordas. Okay. Okay. I keep thinking I get, I say it wrong. You want to get it right. And then, um, and you know, just immerse yourself, taking all these coaching certs, uh, becoming a head coach and taking all these athletes and then end of the day, you know, the resume doesn't lie, but so I think you guys are actually turning the corner on how people view these things because it's far more common now, right? I mean, it's, it's also become a pattern with all the different champions you guys have worked with now. So it's starting to change the way people perceive it. But um, yeah, I mean, if you, if somebody actually immerses themselves into powerlifting and starts becoming, essentially you got to humble yourself and just be like, I don't know it all. And um, you got to stay up on the latest studies and, and engage in these type of conversations. But yeah. um, I think if it, the, the sport is like newer or if there's like less information out there, for example, you were saying jujitsu may with like Brazilian jujitsu or early on, there was as much information out there. They see the Gracie family doing well, and they basically just pass down information from like, you know, elite uh, 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 jujitsu fighter to next person in line. Whereas now maybe the information's out there more. And so someone who maybe not have been a world champion can then, you know, basically learn that information and pass it on. And same thing, like you said, in the gym, maybe back then, you know, there was no internet and like, you know, there was very little information out there. A lot of bodybuilders hid their information. And so, yeah, you go ask the bro at the gym who can bench press 315 or 405 pounds. Like, yo, how'd you do that? I want to do that. Now that there's so much information out there from all different kinds of coaches, free and, and paid for, is that now people can learn that information and be able to apply it without having to be that world champion. 100% the barriers of entry due to that. If you want to go all in, there's straight up like RTS as workshops for people to coach people how to coach. And like, there are, if you're like, look at, I don't, I went, didn't go to university for this, but I'm going all in right now. If that's you, you can, 
you if you want to make a push and you want to start looking for resources, there is a lot of resources available. And then Jason's even talked about taking on interns and mentorships. And they're like, yeah, sure, we'll take you on. And um, you will learn from people who are at the world championships, whether you want to learn about scouting and game day coaching, the programming to, you can hook up with the best of the best. And all uh, all these coaching services have internships, et cetera. Like if you want to go win, you know, there's, there's no better way. Whereas yeah, for sure, 10 years ago, I, I highly doubt, you know, a fraction of this was available. And to your point, slightly off topic, but it still fits uh, with jujitsu. You're 100% right. Like now, um, all of this is the exact same thing with powerlifting. It's weird how the two sports explode at the same time. And there's so much information. There's classes and everything available online. We just study guys like Dan Hur releasing tapes, like where they're breaking down strategy and the whole line. So it's a different era. It's a totally different era. If you want in, you could do it, but you just gotta, you gotta be, it's a different type of actually studying and, and using that way of thinking. Not everyone's the greatest student. That's why being a, a great athlete doesn't make you a great student. So that's why coaching is going to be a little different. If that's you and you're like, I can learn. Well, then you could probably, it doesn't matter your athletic background, how good of an athlete you are. You probably, if that's you, you could go. You can make it happen. All right, fellas, well, listen, we're pushing three and a half hours. This is a freaking monster podcast. I got to crush some food, but I greatly appreciate your time on a Saturday. Um, give us the deets, how people approach you guys for coaching, and, uh, and we'll end it at that. Who wants to go first? Alfred, we haven't heard from you in a hot minute. Uh, for me, just... My Instagram at Alfred underscore TSG or just the Shank Guys website. Bam. Arian? Uh, Instagram coach Arian K. And of course, yeah, we're all on the strengthguys.com. Beautiful. Uh, Instagram at the Strength Guys. Uh, my email address, Jason at the strengthguys.com. Uh, we're also at positionpower.com. Positionsofpower.com. There it is. Make sure you look for that app. It's going to change the game. Gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, hopping on this podcast, and we'll keep in touch. Yeah.